Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is the podcast where we do lists here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for The Rap. Uh, I write for Decoding Everything. Everybody, 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 everybody calls me Bibs. Everybody calls me Bibs. I I call you William. Everybody of consequence. No, that's rude. (laughs) I I, I approach you with an air of of respect, and uh, I, I, I... I'm bad with nicknames, I think. So ah, okay. I'll just call you William. That's fine. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. Yeah. Everybody uh, calls him Rockmeister McCool. Uh, only on the Letters episode. Everybody. This is, this is every, every single person. My editors, my son. <laughs> my grandmother called me that when hey, I was listen, if, but, if, but a babe in the crib. If you're lost in a crowd and you yell out, Dad, everybody turns around. Oh. You yell out, Rockmeister McCool, just Whitney. Or, no, the one guy's going to be turning his head, like, covering his face in shame a little bit. <laughs> one poor guy. Yeah. Oh, no. The one guy who says, oh, God. I had that legally changed. <laughs> this is The Iron List. This is our monthly podcast where our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, select a topic, and Whitney and I each do uh, a top ten in that topic. Uh, usually movie-related, uh, almost exclusively, I think, but there's really no rule we, against it. We've had a few joke options uh, we, uh, here we, and there, but no one we ever flo- went for it. I think we floated once, like, what, what our favorite uh, snacks. snacks would be to yeah. eat during, or just not... Just generally. Not even during a movie, just the, in a general... No one and, wants to hear about us eating. It's, it's no, not, a, it's not well, what we're here for. We did do a, a, a rye whiskey tasting episode oh, yeah. once. That was uh, a long time ago. It was, it was, it was a while It was back. a few Christmases ago, I yeah. think, wasn't it? Yeah. Two Christmases ago. Um, yeah. Because uh, you were kind enough to pony up for the rather expensive bottle of uh, Guar, oh, yeah. <laughs> Guar branded rye whiskey. Yeah, we called it Ragnarok I to, Rye. I wanted to spoil you rotten. And it was put up by a, uh, this Virginia distillery <laughs> called Catoctin Creek, yeah. uh, which uh, it was pretty good. But you know, like a whiskey that was made by a, a heavy metal band like Guar, yeah. you kind of had to fight through it a little bit. It had a really complex. Difficult flavor. It Much was like not war smooth. Itself. Yeah, it was it was a really rough flavor. Yeah, uh, and it was but good, we, just, we decided to compare it to like just Jack Daniels, yeah. you know, which is sort of our plain, baseline, our plain rye yeah. whiskey. And then we, I found this other uh, brand that's in between those two price points. Yeah. Uh, to see, are you really getting what you pay for? Yeah, uh, yeah. Called, it was called Broken Barrel Heresy, which is a great yeah. name for rye whiskey. Yeah, super high proof. It was like 105 yeah. proof. Oh yeah, uh, and. Um, that second one was actually the best one, really like because it was, it was, it was super smooth. I'm not even much of a drinker. And here, and here's, and here recently, I've actually because I made my way through that rye. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get to the list. I just want to talk well, about yeah, whiskey for a little these, bit. These episodes um, tend to run kind of short, so it's okay if we pad it. If we yeah, kind of pad it a little bit. <laughs> no, I I found a bottle <laughs> of rye really. that was put out by uh, Terry Bradshaw, and ah. I didn't I didn't know it was, it was just called Bradshaw Rye. Right. I didn't know it was Terry Bradshaw, the football guy. Yeah. Uh, and. It's even better. It's like that's like the best rye I've had. Well, very well. Uh, anyway, hmm. we're, we're not here to talk about booze, although I suppose we could sometime if you ever vote for it. Uh, no, we we gave our patrons over Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork, where you can hear all of our new shows ad free and get a whole bunch of exclusive shows on top of it. Um, we gave you the option uh, to pick a whole bunch of stuff, and the one that you picked. I believe it was a, a suggestion from the audience, was the best directorial debuts yep. ever. Uh, which is a fun idea, a huge category. Oh, yeah. yeah. This this may have been like the hardest one to narrow down. There's, there's like a top 50 here, and most of them like are comparable. So like this was... Whew, 
this 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 was like you know your your house is on fire what do you save kind of situation <laughs> right, right. uh so i i've i've agonized over my choices i'm not entirely sure i picked the right things oh i, I definitely didn't oh um, good that, that really takes the edge off for me i did uh have a, a, a few con- um you know criteria okay for my list uh the first... one we the one we agreed on uh uh-huh. because we decided that there may come a day when we want to do a topic of the best movies that only one per, one person only directed one movie yeah the best like yeah. one time outings and also because it's considered a directorial debut the implication is you made at least one other movie you made one other movie uh which means there's not going to be a lot of newer films on this list there have been some really impressive debuts in the last decade or so yeah but uh i want to give those filmmakers a chance to uh sort of establish them a little bit themselves a little bit further okay. also and also keep my fingers crossed that they don't die and that's their only picture uh, well I, I would not again i wouldn't pick a film that was their only picture but i may have one or two that are newer but they've they've released multiple films yeah, i think i think my yeah. my newest film on this list came out in the year 1999 oh wow so yeah i, I was i was really trying to stay i i have plenty of runners up from beyond mm-hmm. that and I've got at least like said, one from the 2010s. Okay. I've got at least one from the 2010s, but I feel confident about it. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, well, one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years was Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. Boots uh, Riley has made one film. He made Sorry to Bother You. Yeah. It's excellent. I right. love it. I think you should see it. But just yeah. because well, again, I, I was, only one film, just because I was being kind of picky about my own criteria, I decided not to include someone like Boots Riley on my list. Makes sense. Um, but I have plenty of others, uh, plenty to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, I've also decided how I want to present my list because okay. I actually wrote down all of my, uh, I wrote down my list on my, my little slip of paper chronologically. Ah, so I'm going to so save gonna... my number one for last because that's our practice here on the Iron List. Yeah, that's um, the one thing we do differently from most other top ten lists is that we're not really ranking anything. Our top ten is ten movies we think you should all see. We think they're fantastic. We think they're the epitome of this category. With the one exception is that our number one is our number one. That's the film that we think is the number one. If you put a gun to our head, this is what we tell you is the best directorial debut uh, ever. Uh, yeah, uh, basically that that's that that's it. And again, we if it if we pick something first, that doesn't mean we want you to see it less than the film that we pick fifth. Yeah. We want you to see all of these. So, but you you're gonna go chronologically. I didn't think that through. Okay. Uh, and also, I mean, you're, you're, you can go through whatever order you like. Well, and also, like we 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 fall out of sync pretty fast, no matter what we did. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Once, and once, we, once one of us jumps a decade or something, we fall out of sync, yeah. and usually we just sort of let the conversation flow. We kind yeah. of put all bunch of genres together. It's mm-hmm. we're not ranking it, uh, but I've decided to go through chronologically, mm-hmm. unless of course the conversation dictates otherwise. Uh, generally speaking, uh, one thing I wanted to keep in mind it wasn't a hard criteria, but I wanted to think about the first film this filmmaker made and how it relates to the rest of the films that they made. Yeah. yeah. If, is this them set laying groundwork that would be, uh, that would come to fruition later. And now that we look back on this first film, it's even more interesting. That kind of thing. Is this the only good film they ever made? Right. That's a possibility. Um, what was at stake? What did they accomplish with their directorial debut? And there's a few directorial debuts, which you might think would be slam dunks on this thing, that I didn't include, kind of because um, you, 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 you may have peaked early. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You, you may have outdone yourself, and that's not to say you made bad films afterwards, but maybe... As far as in, in the long scheme of things, maybe mm. you wish this wasn't your first movie. 
Yeah. That kind uh, of thing. It's definitely uh, there, a possibility. There have been some filmmakers who start really strong and end poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been filmmakers who start poorly and end strong. Yeah. Um, some, there's a lot of filmmakers. I was looking through just sort of a list of uh, mm-hmm. directorial debuts, and there were a lot of filmmakers who started making schlock. Like, oh, they yeah. just made garbage uh, yeah. in the early parts of their career, just because they were m- making movies, getting experience, and earning paychecks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Like, he, yeah. Made, he made a lot of junk, like, at the beginning of his career. Yeah, um, like... All of the people that started with Corman, for Pretty instance, much. there's a whole, whole school yeah. of filmmakers that came out of Corman's uh, production yeah. company. Yeah, they all started making garbage. Yeah. Bogdanovich made garbage, yeah. you know, but he made good films after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, I will always lament the loss that this world has had of David Gordon Green, who yeah. started with these really strong, very powerful indi- indie dramas, you know, that are really emotionally honest about real people, and then and gradually now he's, became a genre guy. Yeah, now he's a genre yeah. guy who makes like the worst horror movies. Like, did you see that Exorcist movie? That was David Gordon Green. Yeah, you liked Halloween Ends, though. I liked Halloween Ends. I'm saying, it's not a complete wash. It's not a complete... Yeah, but even comparing Halloween Ends, one of the horror movies of his that I like, mm. to something like All the Real Girls or Undertow. Oh, see, you know, I, I, these are... I thought he hit a nadir with uh, the baby... No, was it the, the Sitter? The Sitter. I didn't see The Sitter. Oh my god. I couldn't get through it. It was oh such a fucking... It's like, what if Adventures in Babysitting... But it's nails on chalkboard unfunny. <laughs> like, ooh, like that, that that movie's aged weirdly in some ways already, but my God. Uh, from, the, from the director of George Washington. Oh, yeah, on, weird, weird, right? Yeah. So, in any case, um, again, th- my short list was like 200 movies long. Yeah, like it I, was my mind was pretty long, too. So, narrowing uh, this down was really, really hard, and I, I, this is one of those ones where another day I'd pick other things. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I'll, I'll start off as is tradition. Whitney, will start uh, us I'm going to start with a film that came out in 1932. Okay, good, uh, good call. Uh, and this is the first film uh, in a trilogy of films made by okay. this filmmaker that ended up like it was one of those trilogies that they cobbled together at the end of their career and decided they were like of a piece thematically. Looking back looking, on it, yeah, these, looking back on it, these, like these three, years, yeah. And uh, it's the first film in the Orphic trilogy oh, by Jean Cocteau. Okay. You, what's what's? Oh God, don't you like Jean Cocteau? <laughs> Jean Cocteau uh, is fine. He's a brilliant artist. I and, prefer uh, I prefer David to Cocteau. You, you prefer David to Cotto. The director of A Talking Cat and uh, no. Sorority Babes in the sl- <laughs> Slimeball Bolorama. He didn't direct A Talking Cat. He directed A Talking Cat. A Talking Cat? Because it's, it's got an interrobang at yeah. the end of it. <laughs> and we uh, we assume that he shot all of his movies in his own house. It turns out that was just some guy's house. Yeah. Like, who let him shoot in his house. That's the joke. Everyone said, like, oh, every movie's in this house. This must be David Dakota's house. We interviewed David Dakota. He was like, I wish that was my house. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I could afford that house. Anyway, I'm glad we... I'm but glad you're we, David Dakota. I'm glad we got derailed by David Dakota. Yeah. Uh, Jean Cocteau, however... Yeah, what was the first uh, film you The surrealist trilogy? and the playwright was called Blood of a Poet. Oh. Uh, and it uh, came from a really wonderful time in filmmaking, you know, sort of like the late 20s, early 30s, mm-hmm. when a lot of filmmakers were experimenting and trying to figure out what, the, what you could do with cinema. I mean, that's what, what was going on in... The first decades of cinema, wasn't it? Yeah. Been going on since, you know, 1890s. And I feel like there was a lot of artists who were experimenting with surrealism at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could have easily have picked Lodge Door, the Louis Bunuel film. Sure. Um, Even though... Technically, L- wasn't, wasn't uh, Unchained Andalou before that? Unchained is 28 minutes. Lodge Door is 63. So if you want to go by Academy rules, only Lodge Door counts as a feature. You're, you're uh, the one who keeps picking short films yeah. in the, in the uh, our, our Alphabet series. That's so true. I, 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 I picked a lot of anime. I think it would have been a fair game. 
but yeah, Jean, uh, Blood of a Poet is a, a surrealist epic. Uh, it's yeah. about an artist. I can kind of just describe what happens in it rather mm. than really tell you what it's about. Cause yeah, because it's, it's, it's surreal. Because it's yeah, surreal. By it's just like a, a, it's like hard a, to a, pin a, down. This sort of series of image, but yeah, yeah, it's about this artist. He's uh, uh, car- carving a sculpture, and he ends up like a mouth appears on his hand. You know, like you do, like like, like Jared a, Leto like and Suicide Squad. No, like like a palm, the palm of his hand, like this human. Oh, mouth. like Vampire Hunter D. Like they they superimpose it over his hand. Yeah, like Vampire Hunter D. Like Vampire Hunter D. Yeah. Uh, and and he like starts pleasuring himself with this mouth on his hand, and then yeah. he wipes the mouth on a statue, and the Matthew mm-hmm. mouth comes off in the statue. And the statue starts talking to him and says, "Go over to this mirror and step through." And he goes through and passes into another dimension, and uh, like starts creeping around in this weird nether space, and mm-hmm. he meets these angels. And Jean Cocteau uh, uh, stuffs it full of all this queer imagery. Like the mm-hmm. a- the angels are these very queer looking characters. Uh, so yeah, these are like. I think these were men he was dating at the time. Mm. Uh, and he's kind of exploring what it's like to create. And it's exhilarating. And it also has uh, Jean Cocteau, who also did uh, one of the best fairy tale movies of all time, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, and this has uh, sort of this... Blood of Poet has the start of everything you would see in Beauty and the Beast in terms mm. of that weird, surreal, dreamlike quality. Yeah. And except, the effectiveness of the special effects. Except Beauty and the Beast has, mm. like, a framework that makes it much easier to sort of... Yeah, like, you understand... It's got an entry point. Yeah, because you, know? you know it's Beauty and the Beast. You know yeah. the story of that. Um, it's not so much a surreal film, a surrealist film as it is a surrealist take yeah, on something right. that isn't surrealist. And you, you yeah, you can still follow Beauty and the Beast. Although yeah. some weird things happen at the end, which I really like. Yeah. I love that Beauty and the Beast. Oh, it's a beautiful movie. Um... Yeah, in this one, it's just the abstraction. It's just like um, mm. the scene where he passes through the mirror, for instance. Uh, it's it's an easy to see how they did the effect now, but the way they set up the camera and the lighting, they just set up a pool of water on the floor mm-hmm. and then tilted the camera 90 degrees. Yeah. So it looks like he was just sort of passing through this liquid medium. Yeah, you gotta really wait just, for that to, to he, get still and reflect it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but that, yeah, yeah, it kind of passed through that and that was really great. And then, of course, yeah. they run things backwards so it looks like they're passing through the other way. Mm. Um, there's other scenes where it looks like he's kind of walking along a, a hallway, but if you realize he's actually being filled from above. Yeah. So it's kind of like creeping along the floor. Ow. Oh, bonking my elbow. Yeah, don't do that. Um, you okay? I hit my funny bone. I'm sorry about oh, that. That's not very funny. Uh, and uh, it's called the humorous. That's we, not very humorous. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's... I love those kinds of movies. The movies that kind of are brave enough to delve into the dream space. And I think what yeah. Jean... I think what Jean Cocteau is getting at, because I can't say for sure, yeah. is he's trying to get into the headspace of what it's like to be a creator, what it's like to be an artist yeah. or what it's like to be a poet. He was also a poet. He was also an artist. Uh, and I think he is, uh, what you might call psychological realism. He's kind of like delving into that headspace and, uh, trying to figure out where the creative spark comes from right. and what it feels like to create and what your creations do. And are they living beings apart from yourself? Mm. All of that is kind of mixed up in this, this wonderful little film. Um, they ended up packaging it with uh, his film from, uh, I think it was 1959, called Orpheus, mm. which was uh, kind of a modern but also semi-surrealist take on the Orpheus myth, yeah. the Orpheus and Eurydice. And then uh, later in his career, he came back and did a film called uh, the Testament of Orpheus, and that was considered the third film, and he's in that one, and that one's a little bit more surreal again. Um uh, 
I wouldn't wouldn't have known about these films if the Criterion Collection hadn't packaged them all together. <laughs> so uh, th- thank you to the Criterion Collection for bringing the films to my attention. But yeah, I, I watched yeah. them all. It's like these are great. I bought the box set. I watched them several yeah. times. Uh, when they were new on, on home video and yeah, I just really love them. Yeah. I've never seen blood of a poet. I've seen mm. other Jean Cocteau films. Mm. Uh, we, we watched one for one of our podcasts a long time ago. It was one of the, it was like the third one in the series. What was oh no, it? we watched Orpheus. We watched Orpheus. Yeah, we watched yeah. Orpheus, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stunning filmmaker. Uh, work is still fascinating today. It's the thing about the surrealist filmmakers is that, uh, their, their shit's still surreal. Yeah, like yeah. It, it hasn't it, been normalized very it, it much. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't like solidify in any kind of meaningful way. It's still yeah. going to have the same kind of artistic power. Yeah, and and indeed, uh, uh, even the elements of style or technology that feel somewhat removed mm. from the way films are currently made and shot uh, can e- even heighten their power. Now it really yeah, does feel well, like you're transported to something very strange. I, I feel yeah. that way about, about, frankly, about Dracula. Uh, the yeah. Todd Browning film. Yeah. I feel like that that has kind of a weird surreal quality. Well, you, to you've it, talked but... about how Dracula, that first uh, Bela Lugosi version, mm. uh, which which wasn't the first, but you know that classic version. Uh, even though it's a sound movie, it's so quiet. Yeah, yeah. It's really like oppressively quiet, quiet. It's uncomfortably quiet. Like like you almost want to like. Like check your speakers. Like, is this is yeah, this like right? A, like, a, a modern audience is going to be a lot more uh, comfortable with the Philip Glass version, which yeah. has a musical score all the way throughout. Yeah. It's going to you know really heighten the mood of it. It's going to make it yeah. feel more like a modern film. Yeah, but, but I like not... I like the discomfort that yeah. Todd Browning brought to it. No, that's that's uh, a that movie's grown on me. Right? Used to mm. it's still not one of my favorite Universal horrors, but it's still very good. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to I'm not going to go in chronological order, but I will start with my earliest, just so that all right. there's some kind of connective tissue um in the hollywood studio system uh at the beginning of cinema the first few decades uh it was really uncommon for uh uh, a writer director to be uh uh, embraced by a studio they -hmm. wanted the the writers to write they wanted the directors to direct and the writers who wanted to direct didn't always you know get that chance i write and direct and i'm good yeah um around the 1940s some of the more prominent screenwriters in Hollywood started to get their chance to direct. People like Billy Wilder, people like Preston Sturges. Uh, but I don't think any of them came out swinging <laughs> uh, like John Huston did with The Maltese Falcon. I, feel, I know you're not a huge fan. I'm not a huge fan of The Maltese Falcon. Yeah. But The Maltese Falcon, John Huston had been a screenwriter uh, in Hollywood for about a decade. He'd worked on films like Jezebel and uh, even the same year, that uh, the Maltese Falcon came out. Uh, he had uh, co-written High Sierra and Sergeant York. These are not insignificant films. Um, for his first movie, he did a remake of two movies that weren't hits. Nah. the The story of the Maltese Falcon about a private detective who gets uh, swept up uh, in the aftermath of an antiquities heist and everyone who was involved in some way is trying to uh, put one over on all of the other uh, conspirators and he gets dragged into it and he doesn't know who to trust. Uh, that had been done two times before in movies that were bad. <laughs> I've <laughs> okay. actually tried watching them. Like they're not, they're not good. Uh, John Houston not only found a way to take the story, which didn't work twice hmm. and make it an all time classic but in the process, codified what we would now know as the film noir. 
or what we would later decide was yeah. retroactively called the film noir. Uh, the film noir, uh, as as uh, labeled by the French critics, uh, was a term they applied to uh, very bleak, often crime centric uh, American movies, movies in which uh, there was a very fuzzy moral center, if there was a moral center at all. Yeah, no, no heroes was one of the prime feature, features. Yeah, there of were that victims, genre, yeah. there were villains, there were anti heroes, no heroes, uh, and that's very true for the Maltese Falcon. Uh, and that's really kind of the only really important thing that all film noir has. Uh, but what we would come to identify as a film noir, the, the big signifying uh, tropes are all in the Maltese Falcon. You've got uh, private detectives meddling in people's lives. You've got characters who uh, try to present themselves as uh, someone who is moral. Uh, and, of course, it turns out that they are not. You've got uh, corrupt cops, or at least incompetent cops. Uh, you've got... Uh, you know, uh, what, what, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, charismatic criminals. Okay, yeah. You've got uh, weird, seedy criminals. Uh, you've got a lot of subtext. Oh. Peter Lorre is very gay in this oh, movie. Uh, 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 what he does with the cane. Keep, a, keep it on what he does with the cane. He's he's having John, some fun. John Houston knew what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. So, someone on the set was like, hey, do you guys ever hear of a phallus? And they're like, ooh, interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> like, oh, we'll put that in every scene. This is great. Um, the Maldives Falcon still rips. Like, it's a really, really, really great thriller. It's one of the great, like, it's one of the great mystery movies because it's one of those movies that understands that the mystery should be fundamentally interesting. The Maltese Falcon, what an exciting name. Ah. I'm picturing it. If you don't know what it looks like, you're just picturing What does that look like? That sounds so exotic. That sounds like it's going to be like this really gorgeous uh, uh, item, arc, uh, 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 antique. Um, but at, at its heart, it's not about that. It is about the absolutely abysmal way that people treat each other. It is about the way that people it's abuse it's each greed. other. It's yeah. about greed. It's about the stuff that dreams are made of. It's not a hopeful thing. It's actually a very <laughs> bitter comment. Mm. Uh, because what will we do for those dreams? Well, we'll murder. We'll steal. We'll we'll frame people. We'll be horribly corrupt. Uh, we'll ruin lives for the stuff that dreams are made of. And in the end, the actual dream itself... A, is a is a bittersweet, ironic ending. Uh, great fucking movie. <laughs> really holds up excellently. Uh, and uh, yeah, and just and he would go on to make more great movies, but just right off the bat, boom, nailed it. Nice. Got to respect it. All right, what you got next? Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I hate to be that asshole. I, I find it to be quite dull. To be quite frank, it just in terms of like it's it's pacing, it's tone, yeah. all, all of that stuff. It's like. I, I expected it to be everything you describe about mm -hmm. you know the, the the deep corruption of the human soul and it feels so uh, uh, litigious mm -hmm. like it's so much about just paperwork but not in an exciting way. Uh, I, I don't know. I I do think it's exciting personally. Right. I think I think we've done so many private detective stories that we have uh, glammed it up a lot. Yeah, that's, I think. that's for sure. And that can be very fun. There's there's nothing wrong with that, per oh. se. But there's something about the way that John Huston portrays Humphrey Bogart's protagonist mm. in The Maltese Falcon, where he's just a guy doing a shitty job. And honestly, he's not even that good at it. 
That, yeah. He, all he is is he, good he at delegates keeping... delegates a lot. He's good at keeping his head and letting other people reveal their bullshit to him. Mm. That's it. And he's good at getting himself out of a out of a jam, and that's it. He's not a genius. He's not Sherlock Holmes. He's not... Uh, 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 who's Daniel Craig's character in Nine's Out? Oh, uh, Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc. He's not Benoit Blanc. <laughs> Honestly, if it was a, if it was a question of like who who would solve the mystery oh. first, those guys. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but if it comes down to, uh, I'm in the middle of a situation where uh, everything is deeply confusing and everyone wants to kill each other. He's the one who's going to live. Yeah, and I think there's something about that that works. The job itself is not as interesting as the situation he's found himself in. And I think there's an interesting dichotomy there, and I think it's one of the things that makes it work. It feels like a day job kind of movie, but the day job is interesting today. Uh, what's your next one? Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to abandon my chronological oh, wow. thing right away because I have something that connects to, uh, oh, wow. so, to <laughs> Maltese Falcon. I'll set that up for nothing. Uh, no, but thank you. Um, <laughs> okay. No, uh, film noir, uh, is it's a French term. It was yeah. uh, birthed by the, the critics of the French New Wave. That is yeah. uh, Truffaut. Uh, that is uh, Godard, Godard yeah. Jacques Rivette, yeah. uh, Agnes Varda. Yeah, Th- these are people That's who bad, yeah. uh, these are people who are writing about mm-hmm. movies and making movies about movies and thinking about the way cinema had come to influence the way we think. Mm. Uh, and they wrote for the uh, magazine Cahiers du Cinema, which was bought by venture capitalists and completely flushed on the toilet a couple mm. years ago. So fuck venture capitalists who buy papers and flush they, them down the toilet. It's it keeps they, happening, doesn't yep, it? Yep. The problem is you think to yourself, oh, okay, well I'll just I'll just make myself indispensable to this publication. Uh only matters if they want the publication if they want to actually do the job well. Yeah, if they want the publication. Yeah, if they want to do the job of running the publication well, maybe it'll turn out okay. Yeah, but, but if what they want is money as quickly as possible, everything is dispensable, including the entire value of the of The entire the, staff, yeah. The, well not just the staff, the, just the legacy. Just the, yeah, there's, there's the reason you buy it in the first place. That was gone immediately because the staff walked out. Yeah, there's there's no legacy. And yeah. they don't care about legacy. Well, the the legacy about... exists, but it ended on at, at a suddenly yeah, and it's yeah, that, that yeah. happened with the LA Weekly. It was so mm-hmm. hurtful to see it happen with it's the LA Weekly. Kind of happening in LA Times right now. LA Times right yeah. yeah. A lot of great a lot of brilliant mm-hmm. writers have been left to let go of there, man. That mm-hmm. sucks. Uh Cahiers du Cinema was dismantled. A lot, a lot of those uh, critics were also filmmakers. Were also critics. Were also filmmakers. They, mm. they were kind of one and the same for a lot of this crowd. Yeah. And a lot of them debuted with really impressive stuff. I'm not going to be talking about the 400 Blows right now. Okay. Uh, which I could because could. that's a great movie. It was. It was. It's one of those ones where I was like, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, there's, there's like, a few. It's like you don't need me to tell you to about that. Yeah. I, I'm not going to be talking about Citizen Kane. I'll I'm also, say that. Uh, well, that's one of the ones where I was like, he. It actually doomed his career that he made a movie that good. That's true. He, like, he wasn't it, able to, like to retro- follow it with something as good as Citizen Kane. Right. And, of course, the subject matter uh, yeah, mm. made him like difficult to, to even fund a project mm. for. So, in retrospect, maybe not the... One of, one of if not the best movies mm. ever made. Best directorial debut... Maybe not. <laughs> I decided that was a maybe not. All right. Yeah, that's that's a fair way to think about it. Yeah. But um, one of those uh, filmmakers was making uh, was making a film. Mm, that makes uh, sense. And Godard made Breathless and rushed it into the theaters and beat him. And so when uh, film historians look at sort of the French New Wave, they like to point to Breathless as the one that cracked it open. There were films that precede. Didn't Fortune Blows precede Breathless? Pardon? Was some, didn't Fortune Blows come up before Breathless? It, it did, but okay. Breathless is like. Because that was nineteen, I think four hundred blows was 
59 hmm. and Breathless was 60. Yeah. Breathless uh, was the so, firecracker. Exactly. Yeah. It was the one that... that yeah. But uh, if Jacques Rivette's Paris Belongs to Us ah. had made it into theaters first, we'd be talking about that movie more. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Better fucking movie. I I'll don't say that. love Breathless. I admire Breathless yes. a lot. And I, I think, think what... everyone has to see Breathless. Yes. I think it's an indispensable film in cinema history. Yeah. Paris Belongs to Us is the more watchable film. <laughs> and it's the... It I'm also, just not I think... a Godard fan. I just... I'm not. I've never I, seen a Godard I, film. I, I run... was like, I love this. But to be fair, there's a few big ones I haven't seen. I, I run hot and cold on Godard. But yeah. if, if you haven't seen Vive Savi, which is the film they made after Breathless... That's why I haven't seen That's, that's like... The, I've heard that's one of the guys. The, the better, like, more watchable version of Breathless. Okay. Like, it's very similar. Um, Paris Belongs to Us is uh, Jacques Rivette. And he made this kind of epic in terms of uh, French New Wave films goes because it's two hours and 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very bohemian in that it's about sort of delving into the Parisian underground art scene. But also there's, like, crime going on because there's, like, this... Uh, mm. Uh, like artist troop, like student artist troop, and some of their members have died, and it might have something to do with like polit- underground political movements, <laughs> and there's just a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of free floating action, mm. uh, and I love movies about sort of a moment, films that are able to capture a city or you know just sort of the mood of a place, and that's all it's about. Uh, and that's what Paris belongs to us is. And there's, you know, wonderful scenes of the, just these people sort of hanging out and discussing existentialist philosophy or mm. talking about the fear of nuclear annihilation. That's yeah. kind of hanging over all of this. I'm also not going to be talking about Alan Rene's Hiroshima Monomore, by yeah. the way. Uh, but uh, I, I feel like this is one that ha- like kind of synthesizes all of those things that were going mm. on in the French New Wave into a movie that's actually pretty thrilling to watch. Mm. Uh, Jacques Rivette, I think, was a much more accessible filmmaker than Godard. Uh, Truffaut was actually also a very, very accessible filmmaker. Um, Agnes Varda, I admire to the ends of the earth. Yes. She also worked in abstraction. I feel mm. like I've, I've met some Not people always, who watched yeah. Agnes Varda when they were like in college yeah. and weren't quite ready for Agnes Varda. Fair enough. Um, I feel like Paris Belongs to Us is one you can watch when you're 15 and just really dig it mm-hmm. and kind of get that vibe of like how exciting it was to be at the time, mm-hmm. be there at the time, but also how how terrifying it was. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe I'm responding to Paris Belongs to Us because it reminds me of a lot of films from the 1980s, uh, which were also about fear of nuclear annihilation. Uh you know, during the Cold War, this was just sort of at the other end of it, and it was always kind of hanging there. It was always affecting the arts. It was always affecting the youth. Um, see, Paris belongs to us because it's really, really, really good. Mm. All right. Well, I've actually never seen Paris belongs to us, but I do want to point mm. out something that I think is kind of fun. Huh. Uh, because you were talking about how uh, if this movie had come out when it was mm. ready to come out, if it mm. hadn't been delayed, it would have been mm. the 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 starting pistol. Yeah, yeah, for the first new wave as we know. Because this came it, out, this came out in sixty one, and Breathless came out in sixty. Right, right. But canonically, <laughs> in the narrative of French new wave films, uh-huh. it did come out first. Because if you watch the oh, four hundred right, references in the yes, the four hundred blows, which was uh-huh. Francois Truffaut's first film, and and again, it's totally a valid contender for one of the best film debuts ever. Four hundred blows was fifty nine. It was fifty nine. Breathless was sixty. And there's a Ferris scene. Ferris Bueller's was sixty one. Yeah. And there's a scene in the four hundred blows because because Truffaut knew that movie was being made and would come out. Oh, they, these guys were all buddies. They yeah, were yeah. talking to each other. They were writing essays about each other's films. Yeah. There's, there's a scene in the four hundred blows where the young 
the kid. Yeah, that's uh, the star uh, of it. Antoine Duanel, yeah. They, they go to see... <laughs> they go to see Paris Building <laughs> So technically, so they had the, footage of it before it was with, done. Within the French New Wave multiverse. Which exists. Yeah, which it's, exists, it's, it's, yeah. technically exists. Actually, there are some more connections. Um, yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah, good pick. Um, I, I, yeah. I, I know it's... That's, that's looking. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I was looking at what Cheating. you were typing up. I know. Um, it's, I'm looking was, up my uh, next person. I want to make sure I get their, their stuff right. There was... Uh, <laughs> I know it's kind of trite, uh, and you know people kind of roll their eyes when you say you're a fan mm-hmm. of the French New Wave, mm-hmm. because that's sort of the the go to film school. Thing yeah, to it's say. it's, it's yeah. the the go to film school uh, you know blowhard thing to say. Um, but you know what? There's a reason we talk about those movies. They're yeah. actually really exciting to watch. Uh, I think we kind of give. We kind of roll our eyes at uh, you know some might call it the artistic pretension mm-hmm. of a certain era of films, while forgetting. How, what a thrill it is to actually see and, and enjoy these movies. Yeah. Um, these movies are exhilarating. Paris belongs to us is exhilarating. Yeah. And I think you should watch it. Uh, okay. Well, my next pick uh, is I'm actually going back in time from you. Okay. Uh, because my next pick is the first film of a director whose name, if you follow cinema, if you know cinema history, you know. Not everyone remembers what his first movie was, at least as a director. Mm. Uh and it's really not a particularly auspicious film in a lot of ways. In fact, he replaced another director in the production. Mm. But looking back, looking at everything he would accomplish later in his career, it all starts there. Robert Wise's The Curse of the Cat People. Hey, good choice. Okay. Uh, so Cat People uh, is, a, is a Val Luton uh, joint. Uh, and uh, it was directed by Jacques Chenier, actually, but uh, Luton produced it. And... Um, it's a classic horror movie. Yeah, it's Val, one of the greats. Yeah. Uh, Jacques Tourneur and Val Luton. Like, mm-hmm. Val Luton, I think he's considered, like, has more creative control over that production. He, so, you you yeah. look at the a lot of the horror movies that Luton produced, and there's definitely through lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, there, I think there's even, like, a Val Luton box set more than there is a Turner box set. But uh, the Cat People, great horror movie, and I'm going to give you the basis of it because it's important for the sequel. Um, the story of an immigrant woman. She's in America. And there is a studly, generic guy who <laughs> immediately falls for her, decides she's the girl for me, that's who I'm going to marry. And she's like, no, I'm really traumatized. And uh, honestly, if we're being completely frank, uh, if this movie didn't have subtext, I'd be telling you I'm gay. <laughs> like, I'm, I get whether I'm whether I'm right. some sort of queer. I'm a lesbian. I'm asexual, but I'm not interested in you sexually. And if you try to touch me sexually, I will respond. I am afraid with violence. I will literally turn into a monster cat. And he goes, "Oh, that's so cute. Let's get married." So they do. Against her better judgment, she's like, well, okay, I guess well, this is what look, we're going to do. I guess there, this is, there, There's cat people out this there. This is the heteronormative <laughs> shit I'm forced to do this year. So she does that. Mm-hmm. Um, the marriage isn't going well. He starts <laughs> thinking... This year's heteronormative <laughs> shit should be like a, a magazine <laughs> listicle or something. Oh, that's actually not bad. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going... It's, the marriage is miserable for her. The marriage is miserable for him. He starts thinking of straying and she keeps getting pushed further and further to the edge. And does she actually turn into a cat? The movie likes to play it a little close to the vest, but that's the horror movie. It's a brilliant movie. It holds up really well. The sequel, Curse of the Cat People, is 
kind of flown under the radar for many years, but it's finally gotten like a little bit more critical reevaluation over the last few years. I've read some other critics talking about it, and I'm glad because it's an interesting film. Curse of the Cat People follows the, uh, at the end of Cat People, um, spoilers, uh, the, the cat woman dies. And her husband uh, marries uh, the uh, plucky uh, American girl who we clearly had more chemistry with and probably should have married in the first place. Curse of the Cat People takes place a few years later. They're married. They've moved to the suburbs. They have a daughter. And things seem to be going well, except her daughter starting to act like the woman he married. Starting to show those kind of Catwoman tendencies. You know, those non-heteronormative tendencies. And he's like, well... I'm going to be a mean dad and try to nip that in the bud. I'm going to make sure that that's traumatized right the hell out of her. Let's get that. Let's get that done. This movie has also aged in an interesting way. Um, what the weird thing about Cat People is that one gets the distinct impression that when you watch that movie in the '40s, it was probably intended that you should be scared of the Cat People, mm-hmm. the the Cat Woman, the Cat Girl. Like, oh no, how how frightening that this could be bad. Um, in Cat People. You know, nowadays we look at it from more from her perspective because she's the more sympathetic character and we understand her plight, uh, which was all there, but the, the perspective was off. Curse of the Cat People, it does ultimately come down. It's barely even a horror movie. It's really more about parental anxiety over a not recognizing behavior in my child. Oh. And it actually does come across more sympathetic towards the end to just fucking dealing with it when your kid doesn't turn out the way you expected them to. It's really, it's for the time it's pretty dang progressive. Robert Wise, who who was an editor and honestly one of the great editors. He edited Citizen Kane for Christ's sake. Uh-huh. Um he worked with uh, uh, a lot of great filmmakers. He was a great editor and this was his directorial debut. I believe he shot some of the ending of Magnificent Ambersons. Okay. Uh, which is which is to say the ending that they took away from Orson Welles. All right. And that created like a rift between them because he was mm-hmm. really unhappy. Like, Robert was like, someone was going to do it. <laughs> like, it, it, I'll take the job. Yeah, at least, at least I can make it, it consistent. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like, but like Orson Welles was really, really pissed. But uh, this was the one that he did on his own. And when you look at Robert Wise's career, and he's a very respected filmmaker, uh, he won a couple of Oscars, he co directed the West, uh, West Side Story, and he directed mm-hmm. The Sound of Music. He spent most of his career making really exciting genre films. Oh, yeah. Genre films that, you know, of the type that at the time were being kind of dismissed by the critical community and not considered big blockbuster type films. But the way he did them Mm. was so intelligent, so respectable, that they felt like they... I hate the term elevating the genre because it implies that there's something wrong with the genre to begin with. But there's also... pushed the genre. He pushed it further yeah, than it had I, gone before. I think I understand what people say when they say elevating the genre. Yeah. Uh, it, there is an element of condescension to it, exactly. but uh, you know, when you're talking about like slasher movies, mm-hmm. uh, that just saying the genre does come with it a, a list of assumptions. Yeah, and so uh, and certain certain genres can be trashy. Sometimes yeah. they're built to be trashy. That's true. That's true. But I think as a film critic, it's our responsibility to try to make sure we educate people and let them know that there's nothing I, uh, fundamentally wrong with any 
genre. I suppose not, and, you know? and nor is there anything wrong with being trashy. That's true. I, uh, that's, that's true. That's, that's the that's what I want to okay. put forth there, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, so uh, yeah, this is the same Robert Wise who would go on to do The Day the Earth Stood Still. Mm. Uh, that's one, one of great, my favorites, is The Day the Earth Stood One still. of the great sci-fi movies of all time. The Haunting, still probably the best haunted house movie of all oh, time. Oh, for sure. Some of the best. Luca, Luca, we're, we're Luke. gonna, okay. We, okay we just, <laughs> Luca's actually like reaching for the microphone this Luke time. Luca's trying to knock over the microphone here to get our attention. Luca's our cat, if you're new. Uh, he's a very very sweet boy and he Lurch. wants all the attention in the world and i'm gonna <laughs> give it to him right now um robert wise yeah but robert wise yeah and he was very prolific he uh, he also did star trek the motion picture a mm-hmm. movie that is often i think unfairly maligned uh, it, it, it's an odd film in some ways but it's a good film in its own way oh yeah, yeah. um he did the andromeda strain another great sci-fi movie he did the mm-hmm. sand pebbles which is you know well-respected world war ii movie it was world war ii Still, right uh, still haven't seen the sand pebbles. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, just an incredible motion, uh, incredible director, mm-hmm. and arguably an inauspicious start. But if you watch it, you realize he was already pushing this to be as take uh, uh, material that would probably would have been written off by a lesser filmmaker and see the potential in it, yeah. and bring it out and make it unmistakable. So yeah, Chris Um It it's there are some filmmakers who start off like really really strong. Mm-hmm. And you're, it, they start so good, it makes you mad. Yeah. It's like, how dare you like have that much talent right away? And then they have the gall to continue to be good throughout the rest of their long, prolific career. Assholes. Those assholes. <laughs> Sidney Lumet, you asshole. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. everything about filmmaking, and you're brilliant. 12 Angry Men is one of the great American movies. I'm actually surprised this isn't your number one. Uh, it, it very well could be. Yeah, it's a great movie. I just chose one of my personal favorites. I didn't pick it because I knew you would. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I love Twelve Angry Men. I've I've proselytized about Twelve Angry Men before. This yeah. is if if you live in the United States, you understand the way uh, the American criminal justice system works. You are mm-hmm. uh, there are two separate branches, two separate <laughs> the the police to prosecute crimes, yeah. and the uh, and the lawyers who go out on the street and arrest them. Uh, <laughs> Dun, dun. <laughs> uh, no, it's this is about a, a jury of peers. They're unnamed. They give names at the end of the movie, but they're just mm-hmm. in the credits. They're listed as their juror numbers. Right. And the bulk of the movie takes place in the juror room. It's a play. Yeah. And it has these twelve unnamed characters, all men, uh, angry men, who are they're not uh, all angry at first. They're they all kind of well. That's the this is what the movie's about. Yeah. It's It's actually. You could call this movie Pride and Prejudice, couldn't you? Because it's about because <laughs> it's yeah. about those two things. Uh, it's about being too proud to admit when you're wrong, and it's about the prejudices you bring into the juror, juror's room. Mm-hmm. And it's about these people who are discussing a murder case, and they discuss each of the details. We get to know all of the details of the murder. There's, like, thrilling reenactments. They never cut away. They never cut out of this room. It's just about the performances. Mm-hmm. Sidney Lumet knows where to put the camera. Mm-hmm. He actually had to create, like, special sets that were modular, which was really unusual at the mm-hmm. time, so well, he could, like, remove walls and stuff. Well, th- didn't they, like, shoot, like, all against one wall? And Mostly, then, like, all yeah, the, yeah, the next yeah. wall, like so, they could do it all in like one. Because basically, everyone's acting out a play in real time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can just do the whole fucking movie, basically. And it's got a wonderful cast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Henry Fonda plays mm-hmm. juror number eight. He's the brave one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee J. Cobb plays mm-hmm. um, juror number three, who's like mm-hmm. the last, last holdout mm-hmm. in the whole argument. Got Jack Warden. Jack Warden's in there. Yeah. Jack Klugman's in there. Yeah. Uh, Martin Balsam's in there. Yeah. Uh, Robert Downey Sr. is in there. Yeah, it's a murderer's row. Or not, uh, no, not more, Robert Downey Sr. Um, Mor- Ed Begley Sr. Ed Begley Sr. <laughs> you got me for a second. I was like, do I remember that wrong? I feel no. like I remember that. Ed Begley is in it. Not, okay. not Robert Downey. Okay. <laughs> Just the, two, two 
actors and or filmmakers yeah. who have juniors active in the community. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Some, oh, yeah, yeah. it's but I, I feel like this is what uh, the ideal like if you're ever accused of a crime. This yes. is what you want the jury room to look like. You want it to be full of people who actually care. Who consider. Who, yeah. and, and will actually, and, 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 who are capable, when presented with the evidence, mm. of, of, of admitting that they their assumption or their presumption or even their first idea might not have been accurate. Yeah. You don't want people to say, eh, guilty, and then we're done. Mm. You want people to actually think it out and give you a fair shake. And it's, it, honestly, in a way, it's one of the great mysteries. Really, because it's about solving that mystery. It is about taking everything that the prosecution and the defense gave you and not just taking it at face value, but asking the right questions about mm. it. Deciding what's actually something you can believe. Because yeah. there's some misunderstandings about how the jury system works in America, as though the jurors are just supposed to decide you know, what the prosecutor told them or not. Like, no, you're you're allowed to come to a lot of different conclusions about that. You can even say, I think they did it, but I don't think they, they it's a crime because the way they did it. So no, I'm not going to mm. say that they're guilty. Like that's actually an option you have. This is about that complexity. It's yeah. really, really good. It's, it's really, an excellent yeah. motion picture. No, and, and, it's, and it's a, it's a humdinger too. It's real fun. It's yeah. There's like laugh lines in it. Yeah. There's really tense moments in yeah. it. There. Yeah. Um, that, the scene where uh, Lee J. Cobb has the, the switchblade mm. and everybody freaks oh, out yeah. for a second. It's like, Whoa! yeah, it's really, really great. Yeah. Um, uh, the whiz notwithstanding, Sidney Lumet <laughs> made great movies. Pretty much throughout his career. Pretty much throughout his career. And even the whiz is interesting. You, you, yeah. The whiz and Sidney Lumet was tasked to do the musical remake of the wizard of Oz, uh, with with an all black cast, mm-hmm. and um, he freely admitted I was not the right person for that film. <laughs> yeah. I thought I could do something interesting with it. I was wrong. I didn't have the knack. He, he totally openly admitted that. But seriously, he he made some of the best damn movies. Serpico, one of yeah, the best cop uh, movies ever made. He, he uh, did the, the verdict uh, is one of the best courtroom movies ever made. He, he de- yeah, I dealt with the law a lot. I think because yeah. of the strength of Twelve Angry Man, mm-hmm. um, he did the more uh, audience-friendly version of Doctor Strangelove Failsafe oh, yeah. in, in the mid '60s, yeah. which is to say the one that took it seriously. Yeah, yeah, not not the one that was like satirical about America, but he the d- one that was like, yeah. "What if?" But really, no, seriously, what if that actually happened? He also adapted a lot of plays because mm-hmm. he did a, uh, the Longest Journey into Night movie, did the Seagull movie. Yeah. Um, uh, he did that really excellent version of Murder on the Orient Express. That's the best yeah. version of any. Uh, that maybe maybe the best murder mystery. I think yeah. the murder mystery thing we did. That might have been. Oh, I think one. yeah. I think that was our yeah. number one. Yeah, I think it was both our number one because it's uh, just fucking incredible. Yeah, it's but, gorgeous. And he, and he chased Murder on the Orient Express with Dog Day Afternoon, uh, which is one of the yeah, great crime great. movies, and heist he, movies, uh, hostage movies, queer movies, queer yeah, movies. Uh, yeah. And then he chased Dog Day Afternoon with Network. So yeah. fuck you, dude. Yeah, like, seriously. And then he did Equus. It's like, oh my god. Like seriously, just an absolutely mm-hmm. ast- and and even some of the stuff that doesn't get as much like acclaim for running on empty is an amazing drama with river phoenix and judd Hirsch. Oh, I, I haven't seen right that's on great empty. that's a great movie but uh, uh, before I, the devil knows you're dead i think that was his last movie uh, yeah it was his last movie uh, and, i finally and that's also that. excellent that movie's yeah. fucking great like oh my god yeah he, he passed away in 2011 or uh, yeah. yeah 2011 and yeah. um yeah, just left this gorgeous like just start work start with 12 year L- 12 yeah. year man and start working your way through cuz you're not going to find too many duds in that bunch. Yeah. Uh well my next pick and and I'm going to uh take a shift cuz all of our movies have been really pretty serious. Uh-huh. Uh so far. 
Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of great comedy directors out there. Uh, not all of them started with their best or most interesting movie, mm. but you know who did was Mel Brooks. <laughs> I'm glad you picked the producers. <laughs> Mel Brooks, who had been working in television, he worked on the Sid Caesar show, he had co-created Get Smart, like, he, he was... Uh, it still is. Mm. It's like 100 now, just about. Uh, uh, 97 around there? Something like that, and still going. Um, he just did, did you see History of the World Part 2? I, I saw some Hulu? of it, and okay. I enjoyed... Some of it. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a sketch show. Some he, of the sketches he, he are over, very very funny. He oversaw it. It was actually a team of writers yeah. that like he kind of worked with. But he also he, he also narrated it. Um, it's 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 a mixed bag. But when it hits, it hits really really hard. Um, yeah, Mel Brooks is going to be ninety eight this year. Yeah, and still going, still going. Jesus. Um, the first movie Mel Brooks directed is a bit of a tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. It doesn't feel tricky, though. It doesn't, like, but it is. Oh. It really, really, really is. First off, it's got a brilliant... He wrote it as well. It's got a brilliant high concept. Okay? It's uh, about a uh, theater producer, a Broadway theater producer, played by Zero Mostel, who, by the way, had been blacklisted for a while, so just casting him in this big a role, <laughs> it's kind of a risk. Hmm. Um, he's a Broadway producer. He's got a new accountant, played by Gene Wilder, who was still new on the scene. He's named Leo Bloom, which is the yeah. character from James Joyce's Ulysses. Yeah. Coincidence? Actually, I haven't read Ulysses. I don't know if there's a No. Okay. <laughs> he was named after the character in Ulysses. Okay. He wasn't just named Leopold Bloom but, but out it, of nowhere. Is, is the character in Ulysses an accountant working on Broadway? Is there like is there any meaningful connection? No, but he's he's kind of like a kind of like a cowardly character. Okay, fine. Uh, Leo Bloom is is cook is uh, doing his books and he realizes that there's a discrepancy. He Finance the film, and when it's you a Broadway show, yeah, when you so you finance the show, and when people gave him money to help produce it, I'm going to give you part of the budget, and in return, I'll take some of the box office take. He oversold it, but only by a little bit. Only by a little bit, like like five percent or something like that. But like if it hadn't been a flop, he wouldn't have been able to pay everyone back because he had overcommitted. Mm. Uh, uh, to paying people out of the profits. It would, have been, it would have been a huge disaster. But because it was a flop, he got away with it. And Lee Bloom's like, okay, I can work with that. It was a, it was an accident, no harm, no foul. And then he's like, of course, if he did this on purpose... If he raised like, a huge amount of money, more than the budget, yeah. and then the play flopped, you couldn't pay anybody back, you just keep the difference and you skip down. Yeah, and Zero Mustel was like, well, let's do that. <laughs> and is a completely unscrupulous. He's a unscrupulous person, and he and he con he convinces Leo Bloom to go with it. But the trick is, you need to make sure it's a flop. Like closes opening night. It's got to be the worst piece of crap to mm. ever hit Broadway. And the play that they find <laughs> is called Springtime for Hitler, which uh, they re-released this year. It's called The Zone of Interest. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Um, Springtime for Hitler is a musical comedy written by a Nazi to sort of... Venerate the Fuhrer. Basically to save his public image. Mm. And of course, they're, they're horrified and offended by this. Mm. And they realize that other people will too. But then, they, they, they go one step too far. And they decide to hire a director who makes camp. Yeah. And they accidentally turn it into a comedy that makes fun of Hitler mm. and people enjoy it. 
And as they're waiting for this hero, everybody say they're terrible, running out into the streets, like, ah, I can't believe these horrible, these horrible offensive things. Everyone's like, this is really funny. Hitler is, is just such a monster and an asshole that just viciously lampooning him like this is actually a good idea, and we're all able to, to sort of get something out of it. What a brilliant idea for a Broadway, for a Broadway show. This will run forever! And they're like, ah, fuck. <laughs> so now they have to find a way. Anyway, brilliant idea. Just the subject matter. Today, it's hard to pull off. Yeah. Like, that that kind of... It's it's still, like, anti-Semitism is just... It's still such a horrible thing. The legacy of World War II is something that people somehow, after millions of movies and TV shows and documentaries, still, somehow, are managing to, to learn the wrong lessons minds, from. Yeah. I don't know how that's fucking possible. And producers manages to not only handle that but handle it deftly and make it genuinely funny. Mm. And this is something that Mel Brooks would not do throughout his entire career, but he'd do it a few more times. Oh, he... he, he Mel Brooks has dressed as Adolf Hitler yes. in more than one of his pictures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, was History of the World? Was he Hitler on Ice? He wasn't Hitler on Ice. Okay. But um, he did a film called To Be or Not To Be. Uh, and he even... First of all, if you're listening to us... Stop the podcast. Look up the rap video that that Mel Brooks recorded for "To Be or Not to Be," where he I don't even think where, I've seen that. where he raps as Hitler. Do you want to, do you want to pause the podcast? No, to watch? no, I'll do. I'll, we, it's it's going to be a long night no matter what we do. Um, anyway, Blazing Saddles is a film that directly tackles racism and uses it as a source of comedy, and he gets away with it. The tone is right. It helps the Richard Pryor help write that, but like, still, it's really really good. And, of course, he would go on to make one classic comedy after another. Were they all great? No. Life Stinks stinks. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen it, I, but I don't It has not been a while since I've seen it. I've watched it recently. It's a genuinely bad motion picture. He tries to make light of homelessness in that one. Yeah, yeah. and, like, he's trying to pull it off in, like, a Preston Sturge's uh, Sullivan's Travels kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's just not funny. Like well, he just there's no there's hardly even any jokes like it's not even funny yeah, like I don't I, even know what he's doing from what I recall he, like he's trying to make light of homelessness not not finding you know hope in poverty like a, a Chaplin film like. yeah like he's actually oh homelessness is a big problem isn't that cute aren't aren't homeless people kooky yeah like that, that was a miscalculation yeah. anyway but the point is is that you know he's he previously had been able to take subjects that were very severe mm. and find humor in it that you could get away with and enjoy without pretending that the underlying issue doesn't exist. Yeah. And he was able to do it with the producers, he was able to do it with Blazing Saddles, not Life Stinks. But uh, in any case, it's one of the trickiest movies to pull off. Uh-huh. And you know it is because they remade it with Mel Brooks producing and they didn't. It wasn't that it was offensive, it was just bad, but like, still. It was just poorly made. Well, they, it, it just, it, they, it just Mel Brooks adapted it to stage. The yeah. stage version won a bunch of Tony. That was huge. And, uh, and, and then, he got an EGOT, for God's sake. And then they uh, tried to adapt that stage version back into film, and it didn't work out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too many with, with too, the, too many copies of a copy. Yeah, with the Broadway cast, even, yeah. it still didn't it, work it, out. It ended up feeling a little tired, unfortunately. So it's not, it's not that it came across as offensive, it just wasn't good. Mm. But just even doing it is difficult. So, anyway, we don't give enough credit to comedy filmmakers, I think, in general. Yeah. Uh, and I think Mel Brooks has been declared one of the all-time great comedy directors with good cause. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The producers is on, my, is on my, like, runner, it's on yeah. one of my runners-up, as is uh, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, who did Holy Grail. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, 
and uh, ZAZ, uh, Zucker Abrams Zucker, yeah. who did Airplane. Yeah. Those were, I mean, some of the funniest movies ever made. Yeah. They're to the point where they're, they've been quoted into oblivion. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, nerds have just repeated the dialogue to the point where watching it might not be funny anymore, <laughs> which is unfortunate because those are really damn funny movies. Yeah. And, and those are all good. Mm-hmm. I just think that when you come right down to it, the producers is on top of being a great comedy to start with, mm-hmm. uh, a difficult job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I feel it feels so trippingly though. Yeah, like it doesn't feel like a balancing act. No, it, it feels like he just pulls it off. It doesn't feel like the director knows that his film is in danger. Yeah, yeah. and he's just doing like it, it. Yeah, you know? he doesn't. It's feel like tap like he's dancing doing on the edge of a cliff, and he never looks back. Yeah, and you're like, oh wait, no, no, but he just does it perfectly, and then walks off, like, and then looks behind him and he goes, <laughs> oh, is that cliff? I didn't care. Yeah, was there a cliff? <laughs> I know um, I, I don't know. A, comedy on my on my list here um you know what i'm gonna go with next i'll, I'll go back to um what's next chronologically mm. uh this is I, I i like talking about this movie because it's emblematic of a change in a filmmaker okay uh it's a, interesting because it's film, the first film a filmmaker who came out with a really interesting complex dour vision of the world uh-huh and then very quickly with uh, his third film, mm. turned into The Establishment. And I'm talking about George Lucas. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I almost picked this too. Okay, because yeah. uh, his first film was called THX 1138. It was based on a short he did. And um, the, I, I love... Tra- we did a, a podcast about the prehistory of Star Wars. Yeah. Like the films that influenced the Star Wars movies. Yeah. And we found a lot of really interesting stuff. Yeah, we did. That was, and, great, that was one and, of the best projects we've ever done. And one of my favorite episodes that when we were talking about Star uh, Star Wars was a short film by an, a filmmaker named Arthur Lipset called 21-87. Yeah. And it was kind of this abstract short mm-hmm. about kind of exploring through public spaces. I think it was New York City or was it Toronto? I think it was Toronto. It might have been both, actually, because it was okay. kind of like footage that was sort of found in like an Yeah, and, and, and it was a lot of like inter- um, interview footage of people. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of trying to say that people were losing hope. Mm-hmm. That was the general thrust of the movie. They needed a new hope. Well, not quite. No, it's, <laughs> that's, it's a, joke. that's a joke. That's a joke. It's, but, not, it's, but, it's, it's, it's actually not really. Yeah. Uh, you make that joke, but it's actually kind of apt. Uh, because I realized when we were watching that film and you know, kind of looking over what George Lucas had done with the Star Wars stuff. And George Lucas considers Star Wars like one project. Uh. So he made THX 1138, American Graffiti, and a slew of Star Wars garbage, and that's it. Well, as a director. As a director. He he produced a ton, to be fair, yeah. Uh, But even what he produces is like Star Wars-related adventure stuff, for the most part. No, no, He did a film called Red Tails, which is about the Tuskegee Air. Yeah, he he uh, did uh, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. Like, he did... Oh, oh, was he he behind Mishima? He did interesting stuff. He did uh, Twice Upon a Time, which is an interesting uh, animated film. I think it's the first film David Fincher ever worked on. Was that or Return of the Jedi, but, like, was around the same time. Point Um, is... uh, If you look at the films Lucasfilm made that Disney is not exploiting, it's a much (laughs) more interesting company than people give it credit for. Okay. Yeah. Okay, fair. You've schooled me. Yeah. Uh... But I feel like, uh, I realize that THX 1138 is the only film he's made that's set in the future. Mm-hmm. All of his other films are set in the past. Yep. None of them are set in the present. Uh, it's it's notable that this whole Star Wars thing takes place a long time ago. The yeah. idea of, you know, hero- oh, in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, just, you know, heroism and uh, yeah. these sort of exciting tales of Daring Do are something of the past. Something from his childhood. Because they're also derived from the shorts he watched as a child. 
uh, or, or you know, American Graffiti. Nostalgia piece. It mm-hmm. takes place, you know, a couple decades before the present. It was more and, like yeah. one at the time. Pardon? It actually takes place in, like, the early 60s. Like, the the, the changeover from the 50s to the 60s. Oh, okay. Because, yeah. like, the next... Because, remember, uh, um, uh, Charles Nelson's... Uh, is Charles Nelson? Charles Nelson. Charles Martin... Charles Martin Smith? Charles Martin Smith. Isn't oh. he in it? Yeah. Yeah. He, he's going off to Vietnam. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's it's really... It's a nostalgia piece, but it's only for, like, 10 years prior. Mm. It uh, just feels different because the aesthetic of, like, American cinema and mm. fashion and cars changed so dramatically in that time yeah, that it feels like a, a huge nostalgia piece. But And it is, but it's not nearly as far back as at the time yeah, it's, as we think of. If, if we made American Graffiti today, it would be about, like, 2009. Okay. Which is weird. Well, we don't have nostalgia for two. Well, I guess maybe somebody has yeah, nostalgia for 2009. Do, but yeah. um, point is, that is that is looking backward. Yes. Star Wars is looking backward. Mm. THX 1138 is looking forward and sees nothing. <clears throat> it sees no hope for us. Yeah. It's, it's a very bleak movie. Uh, George Lucas was looking into the future and seeing... Uh, humanity being uh, completely erased of their identity. They were given uh, numbers instead of names. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were being given, like, drugs to control their emotions. They didn't have any feelings. They lived in these... uh, The aesthetic is incredibly austere. Everything's Mm -hmm. just sort of like this square white box. Everybody Mm -hmm. wears these plain white jumpsuits. They don't have any hair. And they're barely alive. They're just machines. Uh, If they do get to escape, there's, like wolves and mutants like outside the walls <laughs> yeah like there, there's barely like there's yeah. life but it's like just death it, it's not worth life, it's right? it's arguably not worth living yeah yeah so yeah. It, it, it's and that was as far as i can tell george lucas like that's one mm-hmm. it's one of the only films of george lucas's i've seen mm-hmm. where i feel like i'm getting him in it well it's like he it's looked not into just the him, future yeah. and panicked and ran to the past yeah yeah and that's the moment where i think is the most interesting yeah when he actually was reflecting on something that was going on in the world yeah. rather than just the films i used to watch or the music i used to listen to yeah and even even in the star wars movies when it's trying to connect to something mm. modern it does so in such a clunky yeah, like way and you could say uh, some of his uh, Star Wars films from the early 2000s yeah. are about the George W. Bush and, and they're definitely about that or just the rise of fascism in general on sort of the connection that it has between that and the economy all of that is there and I appreciate that that makes the movie seem like really super intelligent um they're presented really badly. Yeah, they're, they're shot and written and edited so poorly there, there's a that reason, those things don't read very well. There's a reason well. why at the time we weren't celebrating them for doing that really well. <laughs> at the time we were mostly focused on, wow, the dialogue and filmmaking is not good. So it, it, I think it's interesting that uh, he decided to retitle Star Wars yeah. War into A New Hope. That's a good point, actually. We're, yeah. we're, we're looking backward into into where where we can still find something positive. Yeah. And it it's kind of unfortunate that Star Wars became the juggernaut that it did because yeah. it robs us of the context of Star Wars in the co- of a, as a piece of, of filmography. Yeah. Uh, it became it's an institution now. It's yeah, not really it, an artistic work that and, just and exists if, in itself. And if George Lucas had sort of been able to continue to make other kinds of movies, maybe Star Wars would be reflected on a little bit differently. Mm. How, where was he here when he made this movie and then he made all, something else, but he hasn't made anything else. Yeah. Nothing. Like, Star Wars swallowed him alive. He's yeah. turned it into a special effects company. He's turned it into a, you know, a ranch mm. in Northern California. Well, he gave it up is what he did. Pardon? He gave it up. He eventually gave it up. Yeah, eventually he gave it up. He was like, you yeah. know what? It's, it's not rewarding. The mm. fans are assholes. And to be fair... 
He's, the fans he's, were assholes, us probably included. I get it. It wasn't fun for you anymore. You gave it away, and you gave it away to the company from THX 1138. Yeah. Which, yeah. that was your choice. <laughs> that was, was an irony I'll, I'll, there. I I'll think say we can this. appreciate that. He, he gave it to the, the company from THX 1138, and they yeah. started, and they just immediately hooked it up to the milking machine and yeah. killed it. <laughs> They slayed the yeah. they killed the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah, they're still profiting uh, from it, but it's no longer barely, feels as special. Barely, it, don't, like, it doesn't yeah. feel special anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know they're yeah. making TV series off of these obscure characters. Yeah. You know, it's well, like to be fair, they they've been making TV series since the '80s, but they were like animated kids shows. Now mm. it's like the prestige stuff mm. is the TV shows, uh, and, and they increasingly so feel, them. and they yeah. increasingly, with the exception of Vander, which is great. They don't feel very special or remarkable, mm-hmm. and it's just it, yeah, it's not yeah. So, uh, yeah. but to George Lucas' credit, he he finally just gave it away. He's like, yeah. I'm I'm done done with that, and he gave all the money to charity. Yeah, good for him. It was it like, was a lot. He, it was like he, a billion dollars. He, he it was like four point five billion. Yeah, that's, and, and, that's and he wild. said out loud, and you never hear people say this. I have enough money. Yeah. Like he yeah. does, yeah, yeah. He didn't he did not need, need it. He didn't need an extra four point yeah. five billion. No, and, and seriously, and, good for him. Mm-hmm. That's great. Oh, and by the way, one thing I like about Ander is that it's the one Star Wars movie that feels a uh, Star Wars entity mm-hmm. that feels like its primary inspiration is THX one one three eight. Okay, it, where, I, need, where, I need to get to that one. Well, you yeah. should. It's really really good because it kind of posits because because life under the Empire, even in the uh, the 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 kid shows, tends to be a little dramatic, a little mm-hmm. pulpy. Um, why are they evil? Well, there's stormtroopers everywhere and they're jerks. Yeah. Uh, Ander is about how it's a fucked up system from top down, about how Ooh. oppressive the system it is to it is to live. Love it. In the Empire. And also, there are characters who work for the Empire and how hard that is, like how like soul-crushing it is to be part of a system that just devalues and hates and... Yeah, yeah. They, it, it, the, like the second half of the season is just Ander in prison, <laughs> and it's 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 basically like what if THX one one three eight was a prison industrial complex? Like it's great. <laughs> it's so fucking good. Like I don't know how that right. stuck through Disney. They did a oh, God bless them for it. But uh, yeah. I I feel like. Star Wars became such a, a massive commercial entity so quickly. Yeah. We, cinema never seen anything that big, mm-hmm. like in that way before, uh, that it, it changed the way filmmaking was done toward the commercial. And yeah. you, you can say that as positive or negative. You can ar- make whatever arguments you like, but I feel like, uh, George Lucas, an interesting filmmaker who was fearful about the future. Yeah. Uh, was swept away from us. Yeah, he said in interviews that he's making films and like storing them in a vault. Yeah, uh, he says like experimental shorts that he's making around his house. I hope to see those someday. I hope that's and one I of those hope we, that we uh, do get to enjoy, we get yeah. to see him reemerge as an artist because <clears throat> he he made a movie about how the system was going to swallow you up and then he fell in. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that's true. and that's really fascinating to me, yeah. and it's really sad to me, and I think it yeah. makes THX 1138 way more interesting yeah. than anything he's ever done that has to do with Star Wars. There was a there was a, a very sad, it was funny, but it was a sad joke when uh, when Prince died. Mm. I think it was the Onion said, uh, you know, we, Prince's hidden catalog 
oh. of like hundreds of songs that he wrote that it hadn't been released yet, and they're all like covers of "Come On Eileen." <laughs> like every single one is a different cover of "Come On" or whatever the song was, oh. and it was just so like ah, like so like I, I don't know if this is one of those things where I'm like release them after I'm mm. dead or whatever. I don't know, but. I, I, if that is true. I hope he's doing that for his sake. I hope mm. he's doing that, and I hope we get to see them because that'll be a fascinating yeah. glimpse into a very yeah. interesting and important artist. Yeah, uh, yeah. If if he were to come out and say, "Hey, I have this ninety-minute experimental movie. It's got yeah. all these weird special effects in it. It's about nothing. It's just this big abstract <laughs> oh. miasma. It's I'm doing my own blood of a poet." Oh my god! Can you and imagine? And it says directed by George Lucas. That. that thing would do gangbusters. People would hate it. <laughs> And I would adore every bit of that Just process. Just on principle, we'd love that. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Anyway, we need to move on. Um, all right, so my next film is a film that is also from uh, a filmmaker who would go on to become uh, sort of the symbol of... I hesitate to call it a brand, but it was. All right. And their first film was a franchise movie. Okay. And it was well, a rush cat, job. Cat, cat people was, too. I know, I know. But it was a rush job. Mm. It was done like within like half a year from conception to finish. <laughs> and in the process, uh, he kind of changed animation forever. And that's Hayao Miyazaki's Lupin the Third. Oh, the Castle of Cagliostro. The Castle of Cagliostro is... Oh, I love this movie. Uh, an absolutely astounding motion picture. Like, it was... The, the character of Lupin the Third is uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a charismatic rogue. Now, typically... Lupin the Third uh, has been played a little bit darker, a little bit more, you know, a little seedier in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, and indeed, when Hayao Miyazaki, who had done a lot of work in television, uh, did directed and conceived of and wrote and you know mm. did this movie, which by the way, like conceived in May, released in December, <laughs> and a which animated is un- unheard feature of for an animated film, animated yeah. feature. Uh, I, I might be getting like the month slightly off, but it's with less than a year. Like it's nuts. Um, he had a much more lighthearted tone, and indeed that tone is something that would uh, even his more serious films that would follow uh, would have this certain sense of breezy adventure of uh, exciting characters living in a very uh, lived in very beautifully designed world uh, some of them would have a lot of depth and complexity underneath that in fact most of them would but there is always this level where I am enjoying this fantasy world with these characters uh, Castle Cagliostro finds Lupin the Third like in the mid car chase like throwing money out from behind the car chase like you know doing hairpin turns around cliffs and he gets caught up in like a kidnapping plot with like an evil guy in a castle. And I don't care about the plot. <laughs> I don't. Care. It's fine. It works. It functions. It's it's great. Um, it's this movie is so much vibes. It's so. Uh, it's it's uh, almost whimsical. It like, is it's really lighthearted. It's whimsical. Yeah. It is an absolutely. It is the kind of of movie where, if you ask me, what do you want an adventure film to? feel like <laughs> my first thought is castle of cagliostro uh-huh. i want exciting characters who have personalities that clash uh even when they're friends 
and I want every single thing they do to feel like a little adventure. And I want physics to kind of not matter. Because <laughs> there's like bits where he's like climbing off of a rooftop and he's like bouncing off of bricks that have already fallen off of the rooftop. And I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about any of that. And, and here's the thing. This movie, people saw it and immediately Disney was ripping it off. Like you could mm. see like the... the, the, like the the climactic fight in Castle Colgado Show is the same fight from The Great Mouse Detective. Like, they, they just knocked it uh, off yeah, shamelessly. In, in the, the inside a clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's perfect. And indeed, you know, and people have been ripping that off ever since. Uh, Batman, the animated series did that. Like, it's just image after image that just feels absolutely dazzling. And working within the, the pre-existing framework, but putting a stamp on it, Making it his. That's a Hayao Miyazaki version of Lupin the Third. No other version of Lupin the Third feels like that. Uh, laid the groundwork for him to take that part of it that was his, just remove the Lupin the Third parts, and apply that to a whole bunch of different incredible thoughts and ideas and adventures. Uh, there's the post-apocalyptic and yet somehow uh, beautiful Nausicaa. Uh, there's the absolute... Uh, sweet laid-back qualities of something like uh, My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service, mm. the grand adventure of uh, uh, Laputa Castle in the Sky, mm. the the much darker yet still has that sense of exciting, thrilling, fast-paced adventure, Princess Mononoke. Um, it does feel like it started there. Yeah. And obviously his, well, his work predates it, but like it's, mm. as, as an opening salvo, here's what I can do... Mm. Proved it like right off the bat. Done. Yeah. What What I admire about Miyazaki uh, that I haven't seen a lot of other filmmakers do, and certainly haven't seen a lot of other animators do, yeah, is um, give time to small physics. Yeah. Uh, animators can do action scenes, and they frequently do, but nothing like in the Castle of Cagliostro, like the opening car chase where they're in this. Fiat. It's like a little. It's like <laughs> it's a, a little, little junker. Little, little, little big and, car. And, yeah. And it has like a turbo engine, but it doesn't work that well. And it's like. Yeah. Dri- and it does impossible things. Like it drives up the side of a cliff at one yeah. point. It's just sideways. I wouldn't be surprised um, if that was one of the inspirations for the car chase in the Bourne Identity. Or, or for your eyes only, which yeah. also has uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that, that well, little Fiat chase. Yeah, I guess that would have um, been after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, actually, I don't know which which one of those. Well, this is uh, uh, um, this this. Kaiosu came out in '79. For your eyes only, was like '80, '81. It might have been, might have been too close. All right. Hold on, for your eyes only. Uh, but um, there was a very similar. Yeah, case. it was '81. '81. Maybe, so, yeah. maybe, maybe, but not so. necessarily. Yeah. Uh, it, it's difficult to say because it would have been really obscure in the United States in 1981. Yeah. It's unlikely the filmmakers saw Castle Kaiosu, but at the same time, it careens around a corner. And it nearly tips over. Yeah. Like that, not just tips up on two wheels. Like it looks like it's going to fall apart. Yeah. Um, so it's like impossible physics, but it feels like he's paying attention to physics. Uh, one of my favorite shots in uh, Castle of Cagliostro is he, he's sneaking in. Uh, Lupin the Third is sneaking into the castle. Yeah. And he's doing so underwater. He's going through like the, the aqueducts. Mm. Oh, like, yeah. He's, 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 he swims up a waterfall. And, yeah. And, and he, <laughs> he's like swimming through and like a current starts to pick him up and he's still swimming forward. And then he realizes he's going over a waterfall and he quickly turns around and starts swimming really fast the other way. And he manages to like stay still for a minute in the middle of a waterfall. And then if we, there's a cut like inside, and we kind of see his eyes get really big and his mask as he like slowly yeah. starts to fall down the water. That kind of stuff 
it's really innovative. It's really humorous, mm. and uh, it captures a sense of like physical reality that I think a lot of animated films just don't. Even yeah. the really more realistic ones, the ones with a lot more attention to them. Yeah, uh, the movie was. Uh, Writing began in May 1979. It was released on December 15th, 1979. Wow. A feature-length animated <laughs> film and one of the best animated films ever made. And it doesn't feel cheap. No. It no. doesn't feel like... Because there's a lot of like shortcuts you can make. You do the Hanna-Barbera, very limited animation. And, and, and yeah, any animator, even an expensive film, you'll find shortcuts. You'll find things to do. Hmm. They did very few. <laughs> they, they really pushed. It's so great. Anyway, what's your next pick? Um, my next pick... Um... Just continuing a pace, going to skip up uh, forward mm. into the 80s at this point. Okay. Speaking of 1981, um, it was written written and directed by a guy who had just been working on adventure pictures up to that point. Mm-hmm. A, a Star Wars picture, actually, a little bit of a connection. Okay. Uh, and oh. he uh, decided to, rather than fall into sort of the adventure serials he liked, he went back to really dark noir shit like Double Indemnity and a really sleazy sexy sweaty movie called Body Heat good pick very (laughs) good it's Lawrence Kasdan's first movie as a director and um and you could say it's it's an homage to noir. It's strong enough just to be a noir. Like yeah. it can be included in the main conversation. Well, it, it, neo noir yeah. is is get touted around a lot. It's just self conscious noir. It's noir mm. you're doing on purpose. Yeah, yeah. And this is definitely a noir that's done on purpose, but it doesn't feel meta in any way whatsoever. It doesn't feel cute. It's just a very yeah. serious movie about people who want to fuck so bad that, that people die. For it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that, I think uh, what Body Heat does, what yeah. you could get away with in 1981 that you yeah. couldn't in 1945 or whenever uh, Double Indemnity came out, mm-hmm. uh, could get uh, probably getting that year wrong. Um, hmm. But uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was earlier than that. Cause Big Chill was like what 84. No, Double Indemnity. What year? Oh, Double about? Indemnity. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. I misheard you. I think it was 45. I, I think it was 45. Yeah. Uh, production codes. Yeah. Uh, Fred, can't Fred, get away with a lot. Yeah, Fred McMurray just really wanted to have sex. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you. Instead of like with, with mm-hmm. body heat, there's sexy talk and actual sex scenes mm-hmm. and like nudity mm-hmm. and and in Double Indemnity, you got to so. see Barbara Stanwyck's anklet. Yeah, like that's as sexy as it got, and it was enough. No, it it was enough. Yeah, but. Why are you teasing us, Billy Wilder, when you're making... It was 44, I looked well, it up. Well, feeding is because of the production code. Because the production code. Yeah, it's all well, you know what? eliminations. You know what we had in 1981? No production code. No! So you know you know what we really got to feel? Mm. How good the fucking was. <laughs> it was good for William Hurt and for Kathleen Turner, and you got it. There's a scene where she leads him across the room by his genitals. Like, oh, yeah. She, yeah, she just like... It's like come, come with me. She just grabs him and pulls him across the room. Yeah, you're coming with me. Yes, are, I, yes, I am. You won't be needing uh, those for a few minutes, <laughs> and then you will, and then you will actually need them quite a bit, actually. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's and it takes place in it's it's uh, in really steamy atmospheres. It's really mm-hmm. really hot. Everybody's really sweating, and they got those 80s suits that are always open. And yeah, and uh, yeah. It takes place during a heat wave, so yeah, every and, scene is and, and and we see uh, uh, the William Hurt character is like the sleazy lawyer, and he's investigating something, and he uh, he's going to uh, the person he's investigating, and when mm. uh, Kathleen Turner stands up, it's mm. like from the back of this like crowd, mm-hmm. and she's in this white dress, and she stands up, and you see her immediately. Oh yeah, like Lawrence Kasdan knew what he yeah, was looking he is at. Drawn. 
and uh, and and so are we. And yeah, they kind of have this playful banter. They clearly want to have sex. Come back to my house. No, don't come in. I'm gonna break your fucking window. Yeah, she she locks him out of the house, but she's got all of these like big like you know door uh, windows, and she just walks around, just sort of looking at him like. Yeah, but you wanna. And he's like, I do, I really very much do. And then finally, he, I think he wears a potted plant, it's, and he yeah, throws it's, it's, it's it through a, a window. Pot. He throws yeah. it through, <laughs> through the window, window to get into yeah. her. Which um, you're paying for that. Yeah, that, but that's it, coming out of your paycheck. Pro, you know what? I think they both thought it was worth it in that moment. In that moment <laughs> but then it's really drafty and then, and the next like, day. No, it's a heat wave. A, well, it's still drafty. Mosquitoes. Got yeah. yeah, that's the problem. It's mosquitoes. Yeah. They're all gonna get terribly sick. And, and of course there's a plot and oh, it's, yeah. there's a noir plot and she's yeah. like, okay, now, now that we're sort of sexually entwined, yeah. I, I need you to kill my husband. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's please, never, please do. Yeah. So let, let's, let's take <laughs> care of this stuff everybody. and yeah, everything yeah. will be better if you kill my husband. He's yeah. like, well, yeah, you know what? You, we, we all saw how good the sex was. So of course I will. And, uh, and, and of course everything spirals out from there and goes, takes all the usual, mm. well, not usual, but takes noir twists the kinds of things where there's double crossings and other players um there's a scene in the movie where william hurt wearing a tank top goes to visit a mechanic buddy of his Mm -hmm. who's played by uh mickey rourke mickey rourke very young Mm -hmm. very sexy mickey rourke uh and, uh, and there's a scene where they're just sort of like hanging out and they're sweaty and they're just sort of like leaning on like I think one of them might even be smoking yeah um, William Hurt smokes like a chimney yeah. in that movie yeah. uh, uh, a projectionist friend of mine mm. was like watching that scene and she's like this is like the sexiest fucking oh, thing yeah. I, like it's not, not even they're, they're not like flirting or anything just these like two sweaty guys being as masculine as possible when I was in film school I wish I could remember might have been in a book but like uh, when I was in film school and I was studying screenwriting mm. uh, you know they teach you how to do a lot of the, the, the basics as well but like you know it's something I take for granted and one of the things is how do you introduce a character in a script mm. you have a limited amount of real estate you want to get that character across right away and they said the best and I, I've, I've yet to find anything that refutes this the best character introduction in any screenplay the most efficient yet evocative character introduction was Mickey Rourke's character in Body Heat <laughs> because it was the character's name the character's name maybe their age and then like a quick description mm. and it was Mickey Rourke's character comma rock and roll arsonist <laughs> you know exactly who that is and you know mickey Rourke is the perfect casting yeah yeah <laughs> but body heat's so great oh it's brilliant yeah. it's a great great movie it holds up wonderful like it's really really awesome in fact uh, my next pick is uh also uh an 80s neo-noir okay uh and it is a film that I might be overstating this slightly, but I feel like it's a film that codified a particular genre and permanently linked it to one filmmaker. Hmm. And that's David Mamet's House of Games. Oh, that's a great choice, too. Yeah. That's, that's on my runner's eye. Yeah. David Mamet, a uh, famous playwright already, uh, moved into the directing realm uh, with a film called House of Games, starring Lindsay Cruz. Uh, and married to it, or was, got married shortly after the movie. They, they, yeah. were, they were involved. Um, and they're not together now. Um, she plays a psychologist... Uh, and uh, or a therapist and one of her clients uh, is really nervous. He's like in too deep with a bunch of criminals. And she gets too invested in this and she goes to meet the criminals and say, hey, can you give this guy a break? And the criminal that she runs into is played by Joe Mantegna. 
one of the great underappreciated artists, I feel. In film. <laughs> like, seriously, a brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. And he's had so many brilliant roles. Never had an Oscar nomination, even though he was in like something like Glengarry Glenn Ross and obviously House of Games, Searching Robbie Fisher. Uh, just a brilliant actor. I love Joe Mantegna. Joe Mantegna is a professional con man. And Joe Mantegna and Lindsay Cruz want to fuck. And he starts inviting her into his world and explaining how confidence but it, but games it's, work. It's actually like a really calculated sort of sexuality. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, not like, it, no, it's it's not, not it's like not, body heat at all. It's not yeah. uncontrolled passion. This yeah. is people who are intelligent and reserved. And there's an attraction there. But she is... She, she doesn't trust him because he's a criminal and he says he's a con man. He doesn't trust her because why would he? He's a con man. <laughs> but he starts showing her how being a con man works, what it's like to live as a con man. He taught his a great speech about how people think it's a confidence game because the the, the mark gives you their confidence. It's the other way around. Hmm. I am tricking the mark by putting my confidence in them. They feel as though I am making myself vulnerable. Yeah. And that's how I seduce mm. people. That's how I get people to do something they wouldn't want to do. There's this wonderful scene where he just like, I'll, I'll prove it. They go to like a bus station or a train oh, station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's William H. Macy before anyone knew who that was. And he's just, I think he's like a soldier. He's just some, some, mm. some, some kid doesn't know anything. And she just, and he's only in this one scene. He's only in this one scene, but it's a great scene. Yeah. And just Joe Mantegna just sits there with this guy. And over the course of a conversation, she proves to Lindsay Cruz I could take him for everything he's got. It's, it's Krauss, by it's, the way. Is it Krauss? Yeah. Okay, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Good to know, Krauss. Um, I apologize. Lindsay Krauss, I know you're listening. Um, it's a brilliant scene, and then he walks away without conning him. Mm. It's just to show that he could. It was like, he, he says to this young soldier, it's like, oh yes, I too was a soldier. I know, like he knows a little bit about it, so mm. he lies. That's the conf- confidence. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, and I'm kind of running out of money, and it's it's a little tough for me right now. And just, yeah. the William H. Macy character offers him money, and he refuses it. Mm-hmm. And, like, he's chasing after him. He's like, no, no, have but some please money. let me give you this yeah. money. I feel bad for you. And mm-hmm. there's like, no, I'm good. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, so he explains to Lindsay Krauss, how... like, yeah. I didn't ask for money once. Yeah. I just got his confidence, and he was off. He was begging to give it to me. That's yeah. the way these things work. And on, and on a meta level, this is a story about how we convince people of things. This is about how we create character and drama, how we lure people in. But as just a pure character story, it's awesome. Like, Joe Mantegna is such a great character. Mm-hmm. Lindsay Krauss is a deceptively... Like, you find more out more about her over the course of the film, and you realize that she's not as naive as we expect and also not as good as we expect also not as good as we expect um house of games is one of those movies that has a great ending and we know that because it's directed by david mamet and the reason (laughs) we know that if it's directed by david mamet it probably has a great possibly twist ending is because house of games established that (laughs) there had been con artist movies before the sting won best picture for crying out loud i feel as though house of games helped codify this movie that calls it shots. We told you we're about con men. Uh We literally said, this guy is a con man. You shouldn't be too shocked to find out that there might have been a con in here somewhere. But we're putting our confidence in the audience. We're telling the audience, you can figure it out, right? (laughs) You can do it. You can do it. Let's Let's see. Let's see if you can figure it out. And although David Mamet has made films of other stripes, 
the ones that he is best known for and the ones that feel so distinct in the landscape of cinema are the ones that are actively engaging the audience as a a puzzle-solving exercise. Mm. And arguably one or two might be better. Homicide is really, really great. I I, I love Heist. Um, but I, I'm even fond of Red Belt, like some of the recent awesome. stuff. Yeah. Red Belt's deeply underrated. Um, at Spartan's very underrated as well. But like this one is just—it's all there. It is chillingly good drama, yeah, and, and it's a deceptively and, uh, good character piece and great, just great dialogue as oh, well. Yeah. Like really witty, witty oh, stuff. Um, you didn't even mention uh, the the uh, con consultant for this movie is yeah. Ricky Jay, and Ricky yeah. Jay is in the movie. Yep, he knew con artists, and he said, "Well, I can tell you some cons." That look good on film, yeah. but I'm not going to tell you my buddy's actual tricks because yeah. I actually know people who do this for a living. I'm not, not going to give away the secrets. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So he's like, okay, here's some like similar cons yeah. that you could put in a movie. Yeah, uh, and he plays uh, like one of the toughs mm-hmm. that uh, like the fake toughs that mm-hmm. uh, that Joe Montana has set up mm-hmm. when Lindsay Krauss comes to like the the den of iniquity where they're playing cards and she yeah. tries to win money back from a card game and realizes wait she's being cheated and wants to confront them. And he, Ricky Jay stands up and he like puts a gun on the table. It's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm serious here. And she looks at the gun and it leaks water. It's a squirt gun. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm not threatened by you. I was like, why aren't you threatened by me? Because you can't threaten people with a squirt gun. And Ricky Jay, without missing a beat, says, I can threaten anybody with anything I like. <laughs> <laughs> Don't break character. Yeah. Never break character. Doesn't matter how and it then, falls apart. And then, of course, the whole scene falls apart. They're, they're busted. Mm-hmm. It's like, why did you fill the squirt gun? That was so stupid. <laughs> so, yeah, there's movie. like funny moments. In yeah, it is. It's well. a brilliant yeah. motion picture. Yeah. All right, what's your next pick? Uh, let's see. Um... Okay, so we're uh, we're in the early '80s, mm-hmm. and it was around this time when the really important phenomenon started to rise of the midnight movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the midnight, '70s started it. The but... '70s started it, but yeah. I feel like it wasn't until the early '80s that like it started to become um, an institution. Yeah, almost. kind of yeah. like known as this like nationwide institution. Uh, yeah. Famously, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo is yeah. often like often considered the first midnight movie because mm-hmm. the first one that. Uh, Film, the theater exhibitors didn't know what to do with. It was yeah. too weird. It's like, you know what? I'll, I'll keep the, the theaters open at midnight. People can come in after hours. They're going to be a little bit drunk at that mm. point. And I'll let them smoke weed in the theater. That was crucial. Mm-hmm. And uh, and all of a sudden, uh, El Topo became this kind of weekly hit. And uh, in its wake came a revival of uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yep. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. Uh, the, the Heart of the Com. Read for Madness. Not Reefer Madness. Oh, really? um, they came eventually. They came eventually. Okay. Uh, there was Eraserhead, and there was there was mm. one other, like, of, of the big six. Um, oh, Pink Flamingos. Oh, Pink Flamingos, yeah. Um, and so a, a lot of, like, very, very strange, low-budget uh, grindhouse pictures started to infiltrate it about this time. Mm-hmm. People who were... Uh, weird movies made by weird people. Yeah. Uh, and... There is no better weird movie made by a weird person than Forbidden Zone uh, okay. by Richard Elfman. Uh, right. Now, is Richard Elfman an institution? No, but he sends me emails and he's very kind. <laughs> and when his movies, yeah, his movies are making the, like the circulation and uh, like through the, the festival circuit. And we have like our shtick is we wait for them to be released. Yeah. So they're not released yet. We can't talk about his movies. I really want to because they yeah. look really strange and wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Richard but, Elfman was one of the first uh, people we ever interviewed together. That's right. Yeah. We went to his home. We did. It was really weird. Sp- really wonderffully. Uh, nice guy. Wonder- nice guy. Uh, we'll tell, we'll tell us that. Very, very kind. Very strange guy. Very energetic yeah. guy. Um, 
you'd think a guy who's like, yeah, I'm going to have a barbecue and I'm going to barbecue half a pig and wear a fez and smoke a cigar and invite some, some burlesque dancers over and they're going to like fight in jello. You want to do that? That's just him. He's not <laughs> affecting anything. He's not putting on a personality. That's just what he's genuinely interested in. And I yeah. love that about Richard Elfman. Bless Richard Elfman. He is one of the founding members of Oingo Boingo. Yeah. Uh, back when he, he and his brother, Danny mm. uh, founded the mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo as a, street troupe yeah. they were just going around in the streets of la and you know performing live and they would eventually start like performing in theaters and it was from these kind of wild burlesques that they were putting together with all this wild music that a movie was born and that was forbidden zone mm-hmm. uh which used a lot it, it's kind of difficult to watch now because it uses a lot of racist iconography yeah that's it's kind um, of hard to recommend that i'm not entirely cause, sure because he, he, parts of it even work he, anymore, he but... uses some blackface imagery but clearly he's drawing from like Film traditions, that's his excuse. It, anyway. it, it, um, it, you could look at it and argue that this doesn't seem to be coming from a place of hate, but mm, also but it fundamentally is. It's, it's hard to get past a you lot know? of that iconography. Yeah, it's, it's so I'm, I'm going to warn you that there yeah. is some imagery in there. Yeah. If you get one of the newer colorized versions, they took it out. Oh, they, 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 they hmm, interesting. They kind of, yeah, like recolored the blackface characters mm. to not be in blackface anymore. So, interesting. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think, I think, I think because he's like sensitive to that now like he wasn't in 1980 when he made the movie he screwed up um but uh yeah he and danny elfman and uh all of the people he's working with matthew bright um Mm. people with credits like um ug fudge buona are making these movies together and yeah he made this weird kooky zero budget burlesque the the sets are literally made out of uh of cardboard his big get was hervé villachez from uh uh, fantasy island yeah yeah and um Um, and susan terrell was in wild wild west wasn't he I, I don't know if he's in one of those. He was also in The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, so yeah. So he was yeah. in a James Bond movie as yeah. well. And also he Susan was, Terrell, who was awesome. And so, yeah, Susan Terrell is a force of fucking nature. Oh, yeah. Um, he played Queen Doris of the Sixth Dimension. But yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, he, he cast uh, his his, uh, his wife at the time, as Marie Pascal Elfman, uh, as uh, an innocent... Uh, innocent young naif who uh whose family home has a portal to the sixth dimension the mm. basement uh like i said the sets are all made of plywood they sing some old-fashioned songs like cab calloway's some of these days uh, or that old uh felix figueroa song pico and sepulveda which l- was also the theme song to the dr demento show so we're deep into <laughs> nerd comedy shit right here which is my jam yeah uh yeah they fall into the sixth dimension and there's this wonderful wild wacky <clears throat> adventure um uh, the Kipper Kids are in it. They two were like the surrealist performance duo. Uh, one of the Kipper Kids I learned just recently married to Bette Midler. Uh, oh, oh Mid- yeah, 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 yeah. One of one of the Kipper Kids is Bette Midler's husband. Um, it's uh, it's wild. It's it's a wild yeah. time. It's very very odd. It's going to appeal to you if you're also a little bit odd. Uh, there there it does just sort of swing and uh, swing for the fences. And even though it's low budget. They pay enough attention to the aesthetic and to the music that it becomes really kind of like watchable and exciting. It actually has a really fun soundtrack. And of course, Danny Elfman worked on the music. Hmm. This is one of his earliest jobs. Uh, So you have a really wonderful early Danny Elfman score. And this was sort of the, which ushered in sort of the golden age of Danny Elfman. And another one of Danny Elfman's scores uh, made its way into another debut at a similar time, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is Tim Burton's. yeah, wonderful, wonderful stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, well, ah, where do I go from there? 
Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't have a. I, I, I kind of cut you off with something like Forbidden Zone. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. hard. I don't really have a kooky comedy for that. But um, uh, okay, I'm just gonna go. Um, no, ah, <laughs> uh, you really. Uh, why did you make my life so difficult? Um, I can go, right, I'm gonna I can go, go again if you like. Um, no, 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 no. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with another animated film actually. Okay. Uh, because speaking of the 1980s, a fallow time. For Disney, for the most part. Yeah. Uh, we look back now... An, excited, and we, an exciting time, I would say, because oh, they are yeah. trying new stuff. But we, we look back now and we can point to, obviously, Little Mermaid, 1989, pushed them into the 90s. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal, but I already mentioned The Great Mouse Detective. That's a really good movie, actually. It was not a big hit. Mm-hmm. Dark, uh, the Black Cauldron was a bomb. Oh, it... it <laughs> a disaster. Nearly killed the company. Yeah, yeah. like, uh, uh, Oscar and Company is... Uh, Oliver good. and Company. Sorry, Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company is... Um, is good, mm. and its success allowed for Little Mermaid to be made, so it's important, but they just, there was a void mm. to be filled, and Ralph Bakshi was not going to be the one to fill it. <laughs> no, he was, he, he was too much of a weirdo. No, he's too much of a weirdo, and, and I almost picked Fritz the Cat, a movie which has aged well, actually. It's it's pretty sexually progressive for what it, well, what it's it not is. Even, it's not about sexually progressiveness, it is about the shittiest, like, uh, the, the the shittiest, most hypocritical liberal. Like, it's just it's, it's incredibly critical uh, about people who are only superficially progressive, oh, yeah. and it's it aged really, really well. I didn't think it, it's good, but I didn't. We, I just did an episode a few months ago of screen drafts where we uh, ranked all of Ralph Bakshi's films, Ooh, uh, and yeah, I I rewatched some. I watched some for the first time, and yeah, Fritz. I, I had been told for my whole life, yeah, it's very aged. It's very aged. It's very early 70s. It's come back around again. It's really good. But although Ralph Bakshi did a few films that, you know, people of all ages maybe could enjoy, uh, he wasn't going to replace Disney. Who did was Don Bluth, who worked for Disney and hated everything Disney was doing and didn't want to do that anymore and arranged to steal some of their best talent and walk the fuck out. Uh-huh. And work, start... work on films after hours. Yeah, while while he was working for Disney, yeah. and they ended up starting their own company. And they had some ups and downs. They had some bumps. Uh, their their first feature uh, animation in a feature film was the animated music video sequence in Xanadu, which is the best part of Xanadu. It's gorgeous. It's really mm-hmm. fun. It's good music. All of that bit's great. The rest of the movie, not so much, but that bit's great. Don Blue's first movie, his opening salvo. <laughs> is the secret of Nim, and that is one of the best animated movies ever made. It, it's it's striking because it's Disney quality animation. Yeah. Don Bluth, like he knew what he was doing. He got yeah. really great animators. Yeah, and but he decided to adapt the novel Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure if you've read it. But uh, I, when I was a kid, a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm I, way I more familiar with the movie than I am the book. And. Uh, so even though you have these sort of like big eyed Disney characters, mm-hmm. there's also first of all there's that fucking owl, yeah, uh, that owl's which looks like this gigantic monster with glowing like crushes eyes, crushes a yeah. moth and it like explodes mm. and you see like all like the moth pus, yeah, yeah. like oh, it's so gross, uh, it's so, terrifying so as a child. Uh, all of this, but then we have Mrs. Frisbee, uh, mm-hmm. who uh, who is an Br- angel. No, just yeah. Brisby in the Br- movie. Brisby, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, they decided it was too cutesy. I guess so they changed it to Brisby. Brisby, yeah. Uh, and she looks like a Disney character, mm. but it's about lab rats, and it has mm. this really b- 
bleak tone. It's about her son who's dying. Yeah. So she needs to go to this lab that has been making rats more intelligent. Mm-hmm. And we learn there's this weird science fiction twist going yeah. on. And there's like this weird mystical amulet as well. So there's like magic as well. Basically, really what's going on. Basically, uh, uh, she married uh, a mouse who, along with the rats of NIM, and NIM is an acronym for the name of a company. Uh, National, been, National Institute of Mental Health. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, they experimented on these, these rodents and they had made them incredibly intelligent and she married one that's how she knows them and her husband's dead her son is very very sick can't be moved but they're gonna plow the field that she lives in so she has to move up she has to ask the rats for help the rats are so intelligent that they're evolving beyond humanity to the (laughs) point where they are able to like rediscover magic as well as master science Awesome, incredibly stylish. They live in this thorn bush, and they've like filled it with Christmas lights. This oh god, what a beautiful <laughs> fucking image. Um, it's intense, uh-huh. and yet it's also very welcoming. Like Dom DeLuise plays a comic relief crow, and like that should be annoying and cute. And indeed, some of Dom DeLuise's future Don Bluth characters would be annoying. Not this one. This hmm. one's a great character. He's a sweet guy. He's got actual feelings. He actually like contributes to the narrative. Miss um, Brisby is a kind person, but she's not an uncomplicated person. She's not this angelic Disney hmm. type hero that they would sometimes fall back on. Um, the animation is stunning. Um, it feels like we've really been through something <laughs> in the secret of Nim. There's there's so many different journeys Miss Brisby has to take from the the owl, her natural predator. She has to go see it. Mm-hmm. To the thorn bush. To inside the human house where she's chased by the cat. Everything feels epic. Everything is gorgeously uh, illustrated. Everything is gorgeously acted. Um, this was the start of an initial run from Don Bluth and his creative team. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be the envy of any filmmaker. Because we, uh, we, yeah. we had Secret and Nim, we had an American Tale. Which was which, a huge hit. Which was yeah. a huge hit, and it is one of the most emotionally intense animated movies ever made. The Land Before Time, which was gigantic. Mm-hmm. And the... All Dogs Go to Heaven. And the very strange, but very good All Dogs Go to Heaven. Uh, and then after Disney's renaissance started kicking in, Don Bluth started... It started getting harder for Don Bluth to... He was still making movies, but... Mm-hmm. They couldn't get the attention that they deserved. Yeah. Couldn't well, get the marketing that they deserved. Disney would openly sabotage them by like yeah, re-releasing was, their movies. Say, he, uh, yeah. he, his big like he he had some stumbles in the nineties, stuff like Rockadoodle and mm. the Pebble and the Penguin. Not great. Anastasia is a really good movie, mm. and it was going to be like Fo- I think it was Fox, right? They were going to like compete really, yeah. with like Disney's uh, Renaissance, and it could have. It's a very good film. Great music in Anastasia. Yeah, it, yeah. it was Oscar nominated for its and, music, and it was. Um, they didn't rotoscope, but they filmed mm. the actors and uh, animate, as, animated yeah. their movements after it. So it was a really, yeah. really sophisticated character animation. Yeah. And right when this thing was going to come out, it was going to be a monster. Disney's like, eh, let's release the Little Mermaid that weekend. The same day. Yeah. Same day. Fuck and it, you. I, and I think I still think Anastasia came like number one, but it made mm. a lot less money than it, it would have. It came in number two. It came in number two. It came in number two. Little Mermaid came in number three. It split the animation vote. If you combine those together, it would have been yeah. number one. Yeah, 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 
Yeah. Um, okay, you know what was number one that weekend? Was it Mortal Kombat? It was Mortal Kombat Annihilation. The second Mortal Kombat. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so awful. Fuck you, Disney. <laughs> and, like, and Don Bluth would, uh, he would eventually go on to do Titan AE, which yeah. was really ahead of its time in terms of, like, trying to do animation and, like, an adventure It, it was realm. too expensive at bombs. Way but too expensive. But a fu- fine adventure it's a good film. Movie. Yeah. It's a good movie. Like, he's an incredible filmmaker. He's had an incredible career. His work in video games has been incredibly influential. Mm-hmm. Space Ace and Dragon's Lair. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, kind of invented the kind of cinematic storytelling that we now take for granted in, in video games in a lot of ways, the quick time events. Um, but, uh, yeah, Secret of Nim all started there. Brilliant film. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you picked it. That's okay. also on my runners-up, is okay. the Secret of Nim. Good. Um, yeah, I, I really admire Don Bluth. I know that a lot of his work was sabotaged. Yeah. Uh, Disney was that aggressive. Even when they were... F- stumbling it's yeah. like no we can't have this why not <laughs> just let other people have it I think it was a, I think it's a, Jim Stephanie Sterling has a line corporations don't want money they want all the money yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no it's not you can't share yeah that, that's that's what uh, a healthy economy would do yeah but uh, they, they don't want that they just uh, want to make all the money speaking of uh, angry outsiders who buck the system mm. there's there's my linking material okay i'm going to talk about alex cox's repo man oh, of course you are yeah because i love repo man you do love repo man yeah uh this one came out in 1984 uh rather famously it, it came out didn't do very well but the soundtrack did quite well the soundtrack <laughs> has an eight pop track and it has yeah. uh, black flag on it uh it, other obscure L.A. bands like The Plugs. Uh, and uh, the soundtrack did well enough to warrant a re-release, and it was the re-release that really got people's attention. Mm-hmm. This is an odd fucking movie, mm-hmm. and I adore every bit of it. Um, I, I saw it when I was 30, and I wished I had seen it when I was 18, because mm. it would have been more useful to me then. It's one of the reasons why... Uh, I actually still have never seen all of Repo Man, mm. and one of the reasons why is because I feel like I probably missed my window. <laughs> We're a little old I'll now. I'll be mad if I watch it now. I'd be like, where was this movie? Like, yeah, this, probably it, one it, of those. it takes place in sort of this uh, parallel uh, universe from inside a punk song, when mm. corporate America has just gone amok, and uh, rather famously, everything's been replaced by generic products. Yeah, sort of white got a labels white label. with a blue stripe across yeah. it. Just as corn on a can. Mm-hmm. Corn flakes. Uh, and and now, you know, uh, you see hipsters wearing like a white t-shirt that says t-shirt on it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the main character, Otto, mm. Otto, Otto... I get it. Repossession. I get it. Uh, is played by Emilio Estevez. Um, Emilio Estevez was a... a Considered kind of like a, a daring, hard-edged actor at one point. <laughs> like, prior to the Mighty Ducks. I think yeah. Mighty Ducks kind of, well, like, yeah. was a big hit it's, for it him, but it, it kind of softened his, his reputation. Because yeah, he was, like, you know, he was, he was like, the tough kid in, well, one of the tough kids in The Breakfast Club. Like, he was doing, mm. like, serious-type dramas. Mm. Even the comedy he directed with Charlie Sheen, Men at Work, mm. was seen as this kind of, like, weird pop-punk alien entity yeah thing. you watch it now it's like parts of it have an age great but most of it is still very very funny and it's like this doesn't feel like it belongs in any part of the landscape it's not quite <laughs> it's not quite the comedies mm-hmm. that were coming out around this time it's not quite the work day stuff it's not quite the political element thriller it's there's weird. like some fourth wall gags in yeah, that one it's a yeah. weird weird film it's been a while since i've seen men at work i, I rewatched but, uh, it again like a few there's some like gay panic stuff that they did not need, uh, but mo- and like at least one moment that's kind of racist. But the majority of the movie mm-hmm. is actually like an interesting attempt to make a yeah, weird comedy. So, yeah. so uh, Emilio Estevez is kind of an, an unusual pop figure because yeah. he's he's he started out as this kind of like daring upstart. Uh, has clearly has like strange interests when it comes mm-hmm. to filmmaking. He's also directed a few so-called prestige pictures. Well, he's some of which rated X. 
uh, I don't know if he directed that one, yeah. but I know it was, he was at least like a producer, isn't like a, a, on top of that one. That. But at the same time, thanks to something like the Mighty Ducks, he was seen as a family friendly guy with yeah. no edge whatsoever. Um, I remember reading an interview with him when he directed that film, Bobby, about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, and uh, he, he said something something that stay, has stayed with me forever. He said, "I didn't stop working on purpose." Yeah. It's like, whatever happened to these guys? Why do they leave the public eye? They don't. People just <laughs> stop hiring them. They want to yeah. keep on working. They want to yeah. keep on telling their stories. He did direct Rated X, which is okay. actually a pretty good biopic about the Mitchell brothers uh, who uh, were big driving figures in the mainstreaming of porn films in the mm. 1970s. They did stuff like Behind the Green Door. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty good film, actually. I haven't watched yeah, it in a long uh, time, but I remember liking it a lot. And, and Repo Man, back when he was a young man, you know, he's yeah. making this movie about, uh, with Alex Cox, this British punker par excellence, right. trying to uh, explode the myths of the Reagan era about, you know, sort of, you, you work really hard, you know, and you'll, you'll succeed. That kind of conservative notion that was floating through. This was a direct response to that. He gets a job as, as Repo Man. He won, mm. uh, he is brought into the world by this sort of colorful panoply of characters, most notably Harry Dean Stanton, right. who has, has that famous line, you know, the, Ordinary the, fucking people, man. Yeah, yeah. Or, ordinary fucking people, man. I can't, I hate him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, he gives this speech about how, you know, the Repo Man is actually, like, in, in this movie, there's a speech about how the Repo Man is the crux of the economy. It's like, okay, you can borrow money, you get all this stuff, but you have to pay it back. Yeah. What, and to keep the money going, to keep the economy. But what's keeping you, what's, why do you have to pay it back? Because the Repo Man's going to get it, going to just take it back from you at some mm-hmm. point. Uh, and, of course, the joke of the movie is there's this one car that is out there that they need to repossess, and the guy's still driving it around, and they don't know where he is. This is around the, the dingy outskirts of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, and wouldn't you know it, there's a radioactive alien corpse in the trunk of this car. Yeah, like you do. And so there's this conspiracy about, uh, like, freedom fighters and, and, like, FBI agents who are looking for this lost alien. Uh, uh, who is it? Um... I don't know. Oh, I forgot his name. Uh, you do it. Who played Bob in Batman? Oh, uh, oh, oh! Uh, Tracy Walter. Uh, Tracy Walter. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I forgot his. Sorry. Yeah, great actor. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love Tracy Walter. He's yeah. in this, and he has yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wonderful scenes about how you know, kind of he's go- going a little bit mad. The whole world's going a little bit mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alex Cox's only response to a world going mad is to. Raise your middle finger, <laughs> shout the f word as loud as you can, and smash shit. Yeah, that's the punk philosophy. It is a punk like, philosophy. It's like, hey, the world, the world isn't really isn't really working for us. Oh yeah, fuck you, fuck the world. Nothing works. I'll smash it because th- there's nothing worth keeping here. Did you see uh, that Green Day recently did a concert and they replaced some of the words in American Idiot to make them more like contemporary and <laughs> use the word MAGA in there? Okay. And uh, conservatives freaked out and they were just like, what? We used to be able to go to a punk concert and not get all political. <laughs> Excuse me. What? <laughs> Tell yeah. me you know nothing about punk. Tell me you don't punk even rock, like punk. Yeah. Well, you know, the song Nazi Punks Fuck Off is kind of a classic. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of well known. Jesus Christ. So yeah, it, it's it's very much that kind of uh, grungy nihilism affected by... It, it is like 
a punk classic. It's one of yeah. the most important punk movies out there. Another one of my films on this li- uh, on my list was Penelope Spheris' directorial debut, The Decline mm-hmm. of Western Civilization Part 1, yeah. which is also about... It's a documentary about the punk scene. Mm. Um, punk rock is is very a very important political movement in that it was the anti-political movement. It really was the one that just said, tear, tear, this, tear all this shit down. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you going to build in its place? Goddamn nothing. We just need to get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> we haven't thought that far ahead yet. Yeah. We're not building anything. We're just tearing down. And and it's really exciting. All of that rage is really exciting. Um, I don't understand why people get angry in traffic. But I understand why people get angry at the fucking system. That's rage I can understand. And sure. I, I really get that out of punk rock. And I really get that out of something like uh, Repo Man, which is just punk to its core. I also get angry in traffic. Yeah, why? Because it, it's, you can't it's do anything. Exactly. That's why. But there's so, something so freeing about having no control. No. It's like, I can't do anything about um, this. It, it is if you don't care where you're going, uh, or you don't uh, care when you get there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you don't if you don't value your time. If, well, if, if, I, if I'm late, <laughs> you know, well, I'm late now. There's nothing I can do now. Anyway, that's not really the point. Uh, I have an alien movie on okay. my list. Uh, and indeed, this might be the one on my list. Normally, uh, I start like to start my list with the one that's like, really? <laughs> but like this one, people might go, Neh. I have an argument. Alien 3. Okay. Keep talking. Alien 3, David Fincher's directorial debut. We've talked a lot about filmmakers who knocked it out of the park the first time and laid the groundwork for what would eventually come. What happens when your directorial debut is a nightmare? And that informs what you become. (laughs) You you, you hate making it so much. Yeah, that you don't make movies like that Mm. again. David Fincher, music video director, incredibly influential and important. His music video for uh, Janie's Got a Gun uh, kind of dictated how like cop shows and movies would look for about 10 years. The, the, the X-Files thing where like a detective walks into a smoky room with a flashlight and it's like yeah. a laser beam. That's David Fincher shit, man. That's okay. Brilliant visual stylist. And his first film was the third film. In the Alien series, and the Alien series had already, in just two films, done an excellent job of establishing relatively new filmmakers. Ridley Scott, not his first movie, but it was the one that shot him into the stratosphere mm-hmm. when he did Alien, a movie that is essentially a monster movie in space, but it was so particular. It was so detailed. It was so rich and, and nuanced and lived in that it felt unlike any other sci-fi film. And then James Cameron took it in a different direction and created kind of the idea of the space action movie as we know it outside of like a Star Wars space opera paradigm. Mm. The idea of like Marines in space, every single thing that we take for granted in shit like Halo or whatever, that's all from Aliens. And that established, it wasn't his first movie, but it was like, holy shit, who is the next big thing gonna be? And they're going to make an alien movie. And they were right when they picked David Fincher. They were wrong when they didn't let him do whatever he wanted. (laughs) Alien 3 made a lot of controversial decisions. The number one controversial decision, and they were written into a corner, and I'm sympathetic, was at the end of Aliens, Ripley was not the only character who survived. Mm. But uh, kids grow up pretty fast, and Alien 3 came out like seven years later... So Newt 
Oh, it's a young girl. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't be in cryosleep. You'd have to recast her anyway, and it wouldn't be satisfying. So they said, fuck it, they died. They died in transit, and mm-hmm. it's going to be the start. And, and Michael Bean Michael also died. As well. died. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was going to be the start of a movie that took all of that kind of glorious celebration, haha, we did it at the end of Aliens, and brought it back down to tiny and bleak uh-huh. as Ripley lands on a prison planet full of violent criminals uh and who, who aren't overseen like no, they have to they, look after themselves they, they have a couple of guys but they're not like in jail cells it's just like mm. what are you gonna do where are yeah. you gonna go we're all just kind so, of uh, here together and uh, and they're led by charles s dutton who yeah. uh, an actor i adore and yeah. uh and he's turned them into sort of like uh this like monastic order, like they're, yeah. they're a holy order now. Yeah, like uh, everyone, everyone's got like a, a vow of chastity and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, g- great cast: Pete Postlethwaite's in there, Charles mm-hmm. Dance is in there, um, Ripley uh, Lance, uh, yeah. and it's it's a boy. Is that a is that a wrench in the works? <laughs> Every single thing that they've been trying to accomplish in terms of just making this a place and where where dudes just work and ignore life. All and of a sudden, it's filthy too. It's, filthy. it's, it's like gross. like the the, the mm-hmm. Uh, Sigourney Weaver I, I heard like she had to get a producer's credit in order to shave her head yeah I don't know if that's true but um, I, didn't, I haven't heard she, that she shaved her head and uh, it's because there's vermin yeah. there's lice on this planet yeah everyone so, yeah, on the planet has, has their shave, head shaved yeah, yeah, which is a very striking image um, this movie is depressing as shit and it's not what people wanted after Aliens people wanted more Aliens mm. people wanted bigger Alien on Earth was like what everyone assumed it was gonna be because it's the next logical step right they didn't do that. Mm. They did something really weird and violent and depressing and bitter. And it has a lot to do with issues of infection in a way that the other mm-hmm. alien movies didn't because Ripley, we find out it has been impregnated with an alien. And unlike the others, it's taking a long time to gestate. And we find out it's actually an alien queen. And that's why it's taking longer. And you're living with a disease that's going to kill you. And I remember mm-hmm. reading Manola Dargis's like review of this, like around the time it came out and it was all about how this, this is a big Hollywood sci-fi sequel that is, a you know, let's be honest here. There's elements of the AIDS crisis and yeah, it's yeah. actually like got big things on its mind, but it was also a mess of a production. It was rushed. I don't think they had to finish they screenplay they when they started it. They, they, they were rewriting as they went. Yeah. So they built sets that they had to sort of repurpose at the last minute. Mm. So it looks really strange. Yeah. Uh, the, it was up for an Academy Award for special effects. Some mm-hmm. of the, those keyed-in effects for those aliens are terrible. Yeah, it was new for the time. It was they used CG to like show the aliens like running, and they they had a novel idea, which is they basically if the aliens gestate inside a human being and they come out as kind of a biped, what if they gestate inside another animal? Mm. So the alien that is actually killing people throughout the course of Alien Three actually gestated inside of a dog, mm. and now it's like a. It, it's on four legs and it moves differently. Yeah. And that was an interesting idea. In order to realize that, they did that in CG. Not or, or, great, but well, they, it, was, they used, it was novel for the time. They used, and they, CG, they, they used it sparingly. They used CGI compositing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually a puppet for most of the, the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the scene of like the alien, the really famous one, that the face is like really close to Sigourney Weaver's yeah, face. Like, and then like yeah, it uh, very slowly opens his mouth. That's just a practical oh yeah, thing like that's said, on the set like, there. And that one looks really great. That looks fantastic. Uh, it's just the compositing that looks terrible. Yeah. And of course, this was another problem with the production. There's all this dialogue devoted in that movie to how big the alien is. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's lar- larger than the creature we saw in the first alien. Yeah. And um, 
That's because it was supposed to be a cow. They shot a scene <laughs> where it was just sitting inside of a, a yeah. like a cow that they were bringing in for food. I think there's like one shot in the movie where they shows they actually have cattle. But like at the last minute, they changed. No, let's make it a dog. That's like more personal. So, mm-hmm. okay, it's a dog now. But the reason it's large is because it was supposed to be gestating inside of a cow. Right. Now, if you get like director's cut on your first film, like Citizen Kane, and it comes out like you want it to, hmm. great. Not everyone can do that. But you had an opportunity not everyone has. David Fincher had to make a movie with his hands tied behind his back. Yeah. And the fact that it came out as interesting as it did as bold and distinct and strange, I admire. I think it's an interesting film. I think it's someone trying to fight their way through a studio system and produce something distinct. And not everyone can do that. And after Alien 3 was a fucking nightmare for him, he didn't do that shit anymore. <laughs> he didn't want to do studio pictures anymore. No, well, he if he did, he would do things that didn't have any baggage attached to it. So what was this film he made afterwards? Seven. One of the most depressing, like, serial killer cop movies ever it's, made. It's so bleak, it's almost funny. Yeah. Like, it's a... It, it could, you, you might also... It takes place al- in an alternate reality, yeah, basically. You, you, you would be tempted to think it's a satire. Today, anyway, yeah. yeah. But at the time, it was... Ooh, fucking game changer. Uh, Fight Club is aggressively anti-commercial, even mm. when it's being extremely commercial. Yeah. Uh, like, it's so stylish, you think yeah. it's commercial. Like, the game is a Hitchcockian thriller about... About like self-harm like it's genuinely depressing and it's mm-hmm. actually i think it's kind of my favorite of his movies um he's gone on to make so many bold interesting daring movies even when he makes a fun one like panic room it feels like he's it feels like he's experimenting the way hitchcock's experimenting and i wonder sometimes if alien 3 had been a breeze if we would have, if he would have gotten angry enough to do all those movies, <laughs> interesting. I it's my theory anyway. I think that set him off on an interesting path, and I think the fact that he was an excellent enough film. And I don't like everything he does, but the fact that he was an excellent and particular enough filmmaker who had such interesting ideas that Alien Three came out as good as it did is nothing short of remarkable. Um, it's a mess. It is, uh, and there are. There's, a, I, I think they called it the either the producer's cut. I think it's a producer's cut, uh, they, or like a work print, or, or something or like the, that. The assembly yeah. cut. They they tried to like reassemble something that was like a little bit more cogent, mm-hmm. and that version is interesting too. Yeah, it's not uh, dramatically different, yeah. but it plays better. It it's more of an intellectual exercise because I don't think either version really kind of. You you have to sort mm-hmm. of put it together in your head, what the movie like the good version of that movie is supposed to be. Now, yeah. Um, that said, I think it's my second favorite Alien film. It's the assembly cut. That's the assembly called. cut. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because I, I really like Ridley Scott's original Alien. No, yeah, it's great. And, and I like Alien 3 because it's so bleak. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't care for James Cameron's aliens, so the fact mm. that they're killing the characters at the beginning is kind Doesn't of exhilarating it. for me. Yeah. It's like, oh no, they killed the little girl. Oh, fine. Good. Move on. Do something new. I have a soft spot for Jean-Pierre Genet's alien resurrection which yeah. is absolute nonsense but it's, it's so yeah. pretty <laughs> it's such a pretty film it, it, it's, it's, <laughs> i love it's, looking at it it's got a got a fun i like the climax where it gets yeah. all like slimy and weird with like all the sex stuff but yeah there's up until then it. it's like it's a, it's a oh mess. this is a joss whedon script isn't it oh yeah and it's, well, not it's not pretty even, obvious and, and, yeah. it, and it was one that even like the good parts got messed up in production yeah like it's the, it's really bad 
<laughs> but it's fun. I enjoy yeah. watching it. And, and I'm, but I'm, I'm also like the one person who likes Prometheus. But you know, that's no, that's, you're not. You're not alone on that. I feel like it a lot of the there, time. There are people who enjoy I, Prometheus a lot. But anyway, right. move on. What have we got? Um, I have three left here. So, yeah. um, so do I. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the mm. '90s. Um, okay. There's so much to choose from. I really oh, had to winnow this down. Like, so seriously, so the, this is just trouble. one of many that I could have possibly chosen from you know from mm. all all these films I chose from. But I decided to go with uh, Darren Aronofsky, a uh, filmmaker I really admire, yeah. and his debut feature Pie. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a, a very much in the spirit of like the indie boom of what was going on in the 1990s. It came out of Artisan Studios, which is defunct now. Um, and uh, he made this really low-budget film about a man who was obsessed with, new, with not numerology, but with number patterns. Yeah. Uh, and he felt, figured that even though nature is really chaotic, but if you look close enough, you'll start to see patterns emerging in all these natural systems. There, there, there uh, is a method to the madness. Yeah, yeah. and, and he, he initially says, well, how about if we can do that, we can do it with the stock market. And I'm going to get rich doing this. But you can tell he doesn't care about the stock market. He's just obsessed with numbers, and he mm-hmm. falls into this weird underground cadre of uh, other like number studies who are also trying to manipulate natural systems, and how it goes into um, a lot of numerical codes in the Talmud. Yeah. And he, there's this like really scary scene where he's like sort of hijacked by this group of rabbis, and he's like questioned mm-hmm. in this basement room. Uh, a lot of sort of Old Testament lore and uh, his Jewish background goes into his films. Uh, a lot of, yeah. like, he made a film, uh, Mother is about uh, Genesis, Noah is about Noah's Ark. You know, he's actually explored a lot of biblical themes, and I think it's all started with something like Pi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Pi is also filmed in this really wild style that Darren Aronofsky wouldn't do again. Um, he actually is really kind of mannered in his films these days. Um, most of his films I really, really like. His last film, not at all. Um, <laughs> But uh, his last one was The Whale, as, as of this it's, recording. It's, and, and it's, it's just, and it's, yeah, it's really terrible. That, that um, movie literally hurt me. Like, I literally, <laughs> like, it, I, 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 every time I would think oh. about it for a while, I was... You kind of, like, went I was bit. genuinely unhappy. And not in a way that I'm like, oh, how challenging. <laughs> but in a, fuck you, you went out of your way to bully me. Yeah, he, yeah. Uh, he, he seems to... Th- he was given, he saw a play and he seems to think that it's about obesity when it's actually about like religious oppression and yeah. homophobia. And he didn't focus on that. No, that's like, all, yeah, sub, that's all subdued under the, the image of fatness. Yeah. Like, and it's like the, the, such a like shitty the, the way to do that story. fatness is supposed to be the point of the story to I, his eye. I'm not convinced got, it's a good story to begin with, but it's yeah. such a shitty way to like, do it. There, yeah. there, there was a way he could have told it. I'm yeah. sure there was a good way he could have told it, but he didn't do it that way. Um, but with Pi, I think he did. I think uh, he just sort of announced himself. Yeah, uh, as one of many filmmakers that was sort of coming up at the time, uh, and I and I just really love the way it sounded. It had this really weird, bizarre techno soundtrack, mm-hmm. which was coming into vogue at the time, uh, but in in a little bit more of a hard edged <sighs> Aphex Twin sort of way, not in that kind of broad Mortal Kombat sort of way, which right. came out a few years before. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was it was this very interesting, very intense entity about madness. It felt like it was breaking out of something. And it was made for a very, very low budget. Oh, yeah. And it became a pretty big hit. Yeah. Uh, so um, the, the films that Darren Aronofsky made after that, I also thought were very, very interesting. I, I really mm-hmm. like Requiem for a Dream. It's bleak and abysmal and, and uh, a, a 
terrifying. Yeah. But it's very, very good. Yeah. Uh, the fountain is a bizarre experiment. And it's ambitious. It's, I appreciate that. And I don't the, think it and works. The, and I think but... that's what I like about Darren Aronofsky as a filmmaker. Even though I don't like his movies, he does try stuff. He's never, he, he, he never feels he, like it's funny in it. Yeah. Like, yeah. you may hate Mother, but he's doing something with Mother. I, I don't, uh, I don't particularly like Mother, but I've, I don't think I've seen a lot of films that understand like what an anxiety nightmare can yeah, visualize yeah. that. It feels like you're watching an anxiety nightmare. Mm. And I've had many of those in my life. So I, it, it hit me real, real. I admire Darren Aronofsky. I don't, th- I like everything he's done, mm. but I appreciate that. He doesn't just like make ambitious movies. He makes movies on like a very, and literally a biblical scale. Mm. Even pie is like a yeah. very, it's a film about, is there something more to the universe? And I uh-huh. feel uh, that there aren't a lot of filmmakers who are grappling with those kind of questions uh, with that much... Oh, let me rephrase. Grappling with that kind of question with that little certainty about the answers. Yeah. A lot of the time when you make a movie about the religious experience or, or even a, a lack of faith therein, you definitely have a perspective. And mm. I feel like a lot of Aronofsky's films are like, no, it's all real, but it's also fucked up. Yeah. And it's inspirational. <laughs> like th- those things are all equally true. Mm. And just how intense that is. He's a really great film. Pi is fantastic. Yeah. Pi is oh, just an I'm absolute fine. humdinger of a, of a debut. And again, it's one of those movies he made it for, ne- for next to nothing. And it doesn't feel small. Hmm. It's little, it's like it's it's an intimate story, but it doesn't feel like you know the, you you could have used a few million more to make this movie. It's like no, this is that movie, yeah. exactly right. Uh, my next pick is also uh, so, in, um, yeah, come on. Well, I just wanted to look up the budget of this thing because it's made for very. It made it for one hundred thirty four thousand dollars. Yeah, like almost nothing. Yeah, yeah, which is very very little, even at the time. It was very little. Um, my next pick is also an indie film from the nineties. I think Pi was a Sundance movie. I think this was two. Mm. Um. And it's a film that is very unlike what the filmmaker would become, but also is what the filmmaker would become. It's Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. Oh, yeah, that's one of my runners-up as well. I I love Bottle Rocket to pieces. Bottle Rocket is uh, unlike a lot of Wes Anderson's later movies because he hadn't become uh, as highly detailed a visual filmmaker yet. Mm. Um, and, and it started in Rushmore. We started pieces of it when we started to get, like, Max Fisher's plays and how, like, elaborate they are and how, like, uh, visually inventive and impressive they could be. And then from Royal Tenenbaums onward, his films started to feel even... Increasingly e- mannered. Well, yeah. not just mannered. It feels like they're, like, uh, he's making dioramas yeah. as much as anything. He's creating these somewhat artificial worlds for his very real characters to live in. And one of the few things that is consistent amongst uh, uh, Wes Anderson's filmography, because he made films about a whole bunch of different things. His films are mostly about lost, lonely people who are desperately trying to get control of their lives by controlling their surroundings. Yeah. They're... they're making an environment they they make plays that represent what they want things to be they uh make their 
I'm, I totally just lost my train of thought. Like the French Dispatch, we're writing the world, yeah, the way that uh, uh, we view it, and every every different article is written by different authors and in a different style. Um, I love the French Dispatch. I, you like it more than I do. It's really Asteroid City is a great yeah. example of this, where it's like this this sort of uh, nesting doll kind of thing, where the movie we're watching is actually a recreation hmm. of a play which we're also seeing the making of, and we're also seeing the making of the making of as mm-hmm. well. And it's all about people trying to exert control where they have none. And Bottle Rocket is the start of that, and it's about two guys who are trying to make the world that they want to live in, but unlike Wes Anderson later in his career, they do not have the skills, nor do they have the materials. Yeah. So it well, comes across it's... as a little bit more sad. It's a little more sad. Well, it's it's sad. It's more natural. And mm-hmm. what I like about Bottle Rocket, uh, when comparing it to other um, mm-hmm. Wes Anderson films, is you look at other Wes Anderson her- uh, heroes, and they work their way toward their goal and they achieve that. Yeah. Uh, they're they're they have to fight against the world because they are weird. Yeah. And they are so laser focused on constructing the world they, the way they want it to be mm-hmm. that when they succeed, you cheer. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Bottle Rocket, they have this goal. But they get distracted. Yeah, they they want to be criminals. That's their goal. They, they want to they they be, be cool, like heist yeah. criminals. But the, uh, a heist doesn't go that well, and they have to hide out in a motel for a long time, which is something they didn't plan on. Yeah. and that's where the story starts to take place. Is yeah. when one of the uh, one of the characters starts to fall in love with one of the women who works at the motel. Yeah, and and, it, and it's, it's, a, it's actually life about is the encroaching affair, on yeah. their fantasy. So yeah. it's actually about sort of the sloppiness and unpredictability of life yeah. proving to be the thing you're working for, yeah. not the goal you were focused on. And it's and so interesting to me that Wes Anderson's career would eventually move into more and more about recreating that fantasy and less and less about life encroaching in on it. Yeah, yeah. And that's not to say it doesn't happen, but it's so much of it is about like this sort of heroic quality of people making the world into what they want it to be rather than dealing with what it is. Mm. Uh, and Bottle Rocket, in its intimacy, in its low budget, in the fact that that budget actually affects the level of ambition his characters can have and achieve, mm. there's something way, way, way more... Yeah, I think intimate, way more tragic about it. Mm. But also, it, it kind of is the code key, I think, to all of his later films. Where you see the reality underneath the artificiality. Which is there in all of his movies, but some of his characters are better at hiding it. Mm -hmm. And in Bottle Rocket, they suck at hiding it. They're terrible. (laughs) Dignan can pull it off for a minute, and then it's gone, because he's just a sad guy who's running from his life. And it's great. I love Bottle Rocket. It's underappreciated in his filmography. What you got next? Uh, and this is going to be the most recent film on my list because okay. I, I said it's kind of going through chronologically. Mm. Um, and again, I didn't want to get into too recent because I want the newer filmmakers who have just emerged mm-hmm. to make more movies. Sure, sure. I could say Lady Bird. I love Lady Bird. And, and but, but arguably, it's not her first. So she co-directed another movie before that. Oh, that yeah, you're right. I would have put was, Lady Bird uh, actually. Greenberg. No, I don't think that was that. Uh, I'll, 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 um, I'll look that up as worth remembering. I Greenberg. I don't think that was that was that. Like, maybe. Uh, um. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, some of the more recent films I wanted to get to. Uh, Lady Bird was on there. Joe Cornish's Attack the Block, Ex Machina, The Witch, uh, May by Lucky McKee. We'll go through movies. the runners up. In um, uh, but I wanted to focus on Lynn Ramsey, 
who did a film in 1999 called Ratcatcher. Good pick. uh, Which is a brilliant piece of work uh, from a brilliant filmmaker who is not working enough. Um, She co-directed a film called Nights and Weekends with Joe Swanberg. Oh, okay. Yeah. She 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 wrote and co-wrote a bunch of stuff, but that was the one that she co-directed before Lady Bird. Before Lady Bird. Yeah. Quite a few years before Lady Bird. It was almost nine years ago. Or nine years before. Um, Yeah. uh, Lynn Ramsey, Scottish filmmaker, uh, has only made a couple films. Yeah. Uh, made Ratcatcher, made Morver and Kalar, which is also a brilliant piece of work. Mm. Uh, also made um, uh, the Joaquin Phoenix film. Um, oh, uh, you, you were, were never, never really here. here. Oh, God, um, I love which, that movie. Yeah. I love that and, movie. And also, we need to talk about Kevin, which... Yeah. It's aged is, weirdly. Is aged weirdly. Um, yeah. You can see her ambition, but I think she kind of whiffed a lot of that movie. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's it still, works... still interesting. I still think you should watch I, I, it, I, I but still... it's her, her yeah. least of her work. Yeah. Um, but she she just burst. She was going to do the lovely bones and yeah. started to work on it, oh, and we got God, kicked off. Killed that would have been great that. to see that because because yeah. Peter Jackson's sucks. It's not good. Uh, it is very bad. There's a reason um, no one ever talks about that movie. Yeah, we all just like we talk about the Hobbit movies, which are worse <laughs> more than we talk about the lovely yeah. bones. Um, but Lynn Ramsey made Ratcatcher. It takes place in uh, in Scotland during a garbage strike. And it's about little kids. And it's just about little kids. It's about what was happening with the children during this garbage strike. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the streets are piled up with garbage. And it starts with a very tragic event. Little kid goes out to play, falls into a ravine and drowns. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of the inciting incident of the film. And it's about the kid he was playing with who doesn't say anything about it. And doesn't, uh, you know, tries to just stay quiet. And kind of the guilt that he kind of carries with him for the rest of the movie. While he's still trying to just be a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, this, uh, I love movies about kids just trying to be kids. And live yeah. in sort of their various uh, desperate situations. And there's a lot of filth and a lot of hate and a lot of abuse. But also a lot of gorgeous moments of connection. And a lot of mo- moments of quiet beauty. And a lot of moments of peer Peer, peer pressure and a lot mm-hmm. of moments of bullying and a lot of moments of survival. Uh, just this whole panoply of emotions that we're going through. Mm. There's a really beautiful scene where the main character kind of goes into a house that's under construction, looks out a window, and he sees something that he hasn't seen for a long time. And it's just a big f- open field. Yeah. This big uh, natural phenomenon. He goes out and just sort of runs around in the grass. And it's so beautiful. Uh, it's. I, I feel like uh, filmmakers have a lot of trouble very often capturing what it feels like to be a child. Well, we're pretty far removed from we're it. We're far removed from Any it. Any adult often yeah, wants to so, put a lot of that aside and they don't really think about uh, the it, full experience. In, in a sociology class I took, it was pointed out to me that innocence, the mm. innocence of children, is a quality we project on them. Yeah. Uh, children are actually point. very uh, sophisticated people, emotionally. They know... Mm. They're kind of reacting to the world differently because they're still growing. Well, they, they don't have as much uh, experience. They're they're, yeah. they're reacting in a very... Well, I think what we assume is innocence is actually a certain amount of purity. Purity, like a and lack I, of a I, filter. I, that's not like a that. judgment. That's just... Hmm. I'm not... I have no baggage on which to bounce this. Yeah. So I'm just... You're just getting my natural reaction mm. in a very unfiltered mm. way. Yeah. And I feel like Lynn Ramsey got it she understood yeah. like i'm gonna put my put the cameras down see what these children are actually going through uh and kind of capture the texture of their lives mm. uh there's a lot of rough stuff in Ratcatcher. there is you know children in peril there's some animal uh cruelty in the movie that you know if you're sensitive to that it, you're not gonna like it mm-hmm. um but i think at the end of the day she's constructing a very meticulous 
uh, drama about a child's emotional state that I think people will be able to relate to and, and understand and remember in a way that's not nostalgic. Mm. It's just remembering. And I, and I really admire that. She's not afraid to go into the places where like we're, we're feeling a lot of pain and she understands that there's a lot that we're not confronting about our own pain. Yeah. That's what Morver and Kalar is about. Morver and Kalar uh, is about a young woman. She comes home, finds her boyfriend dead by his own hand mm. and, and has left a note. And she just leaves him there for a long time and doesn't tell anybody and kind of goes out into the world. Like, and is this about grieving or is this about how we uh, tend to look at the tragedy in our lives as incidental when we need to survive. Uh, or, or maybe it's about something else you can discuss. Um, Lynn Ramsey has only made the four films and I want her to make more uh, yeah. because that was 1999 and she's only made four films. It's yeah. 2024. I actually, I actually, I have to imagine I still haven't seen Ratcatcher. Uh, oh. But you've, you've always, and it's, it's weird because I love her work. Oh. Like I love She's only work. done the four, yeah. Just I know. do it. And I just I really need to get around to it. Um so I have nothing really contributed to that other than she's a phenomenal filmmaker. I think she's one of the best filmmakers working. No. She just wish, I just wish she worked you, more. You, you were never really here is a, a, one of the better portraits of depression out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And and like I said, we need to talk about Kevin is deals with some really fraught things. Yeah. But it's it's like the most stylized of her movies. It mm-hmm. feels like a horror movie. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like it's trying to address something very, uh, very touchy in a, a really stylistic way that I think undermines a lot of what she's trying to say. Yeah, and, it's a lot of people kind of miss what I think is what I think she's clearly getting at there. And I think the fact that it's so easy to miss, um, it, well, it speaks to the film's perhaps downfalls. But um, regardless, great filmmaker. Um, my next pick, I, I mentioned that I had uh, at least one newer film. There's a couple of, you know, sometimes when I'm announcing this list there's a few things that kind of get bumped up and down mm-hmm. off the list there's maybe one or two more that might have made it but the one film i have from the 2010s is a film that is first off it's great but it's not just great it's so great it redefined someone like immediately mm-hmm. someone who went into the film we'd already been familiar with them they had a lot of baggage positive mostly but still and we thought we knew who they were we thought we knew what they were about. We thought we knew what they could do. And then Jordan Peele <laughs> told us to get out. Jordan Peele, brilliant comedian. His his show, I, I, I didn't really watch a lot of Mad TV, but his show Key and Peele with Keegan-Michael Key is a consistently brilliant sketch comedy show. There's a reason why so many of them have become memes. Uh, watch the Gremlins 2 sketch, <laughs> which is absolutely made by people who get me and, uh. and are making stuff specifically for me. It's a brilliant bit. Um, and just before he directed this horror movie, Get Out, he had written and co-starred with Keegan-Michael Key uh, the comedy Keanu, which is delightful. Mm-hmm. And it's really smart as well. It's a genuinely great comedy. I'm, I'm actually amazed we don't talk about it more. And I think the reason we don't talk about it more is because as soon as Get Out came out, this guy who had spent like the better part of two decades developing a huge reputation as a comedian was immediately one of the great horror filmmakers of our generation. <laughs> and sure enough, over the course of two films since... Mm. has followed up on that. And while you may think some of those are better than others, they're all intense, particular, inspired, 
creative Super horror ambitious, movies. yeah. Very ambitious horror movies. And I know you're not a huge fan of us, but come on, that's mm-hmm. ambitious. Uh, I, I will not fault its ambition. Yeah, I love it, but mm-hmm. I get it. I understand. It's, it's certainly, after Get Out, which is one of the great modern screenplays, mm-hmm. just period, it's incredibly derivative of The Stepford Wives, granted, but... I think it's a better screenplay than The Stepford Wives, and William Goldman wrote that show. <laughs> Get Out, which is a story about uh, a, uh, a young black man played by Daniel Kaluuya. He's got a white girlfriend played by Alyssa, uh, Allison Williams, and he's going to her family's home. I think it's in Connecticut. It's in New uh, England. An upscale yeah. New England liberal home. Yeah. yeah. And he knows it's going to be uncomfortable that she has a, a black boyfriend. Hmm. And he's ready for that. But he's not. <laughs> because every single fucking thing they say, which makes it sound like they're trying to be endearing and show that they're they're progressive people, reveals that they have a lot of unprocessed racism. And just initially, when it's a guess who's coming to dinner kind of thing, and it's just a very awkward comedy of manners, every single interaction, every single moment, every single line, every single shot is incredibly particular. And it it's just uncomfortable enough that even though it's funny, it's not a comedy. <laughs> it's there's there's something off, and you've probably seen the movie. It's really huge, and it came out a long, long time ago. But I'll I'll be vague just in case anyone hasn't. Um, it turns out that his suspicions that something sinister are going on have some validity, and as the movie progresses and the thriller elements get more intense and more unpredictable, you start saying to yourself. Well, this is, surely this is ridiculous. And then you go through the whole movie and you rewatch it and you realize literally every line of dialogue was setting something up. Yeah, they, they and were playing it, fair. And every line of dialogue works on a different level the first time you see it. It is two scripts simultaneously. <laughs> arguably three. It is so fucking great. It is so exquisitely filmed. It is genuinely terrifying. Uh, and he even made a great choice because the original ending of the movie was very bleak. Mm. It was very, very depressing. And that was written at a time when he was uh, the movie was a commentary on the rise of hypocritical white liberalism. Mm. You know, when we thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And it came out right after Trump was elected. And after Trump was elected... Oh well, maybe maybe we need some hope. <laughs> maybe we need just some yeah, some little glimmer of positivity at the end. And the and the solution, which was a reshoot, mm. you'd never know it was a reshoot. It's oh, elegant. Oh, I, oh no, I can fucking tell. Oh no, it's great uh, though because, because the tone changes and it's like a no, different kind of movie after that. No, I think it's perfect. Uh, it's, it's, it's only it's, thirty seconds. It's the only part of it I don't like. It's is, thirty is seconds. The end. Oh, I think it works. Like the, I think it's the, great. The, the climax of the movie, like the positive, the happy ending, that didn't. Click I, I wouldn't well call it a happy it, ending, but it's certainly a less bleak ending. Yeah, I, I suppose yeah, so. Yeah. Like, I, it, it, was, it works. I think. I think. It's, right. I think it's necessary. But regardless, mm-hmm. um, it, I mean, the whole audience just gasped. Yeah. It's just like, oh, oh, Jesus! I don't know if I could take any more because no, that it, climax was seriously some of the most breathless I've ever seen any audience. <laughs> like you could feel uh, the anxiety in the room about just how fucking nervous we are about how all this was going to turn out. Mm. God, what a great fucking movie! And it just. We don't think of him as a comedy guy anymore. <laughs> we do because yeah, well, his all of his sketches are still out there. But he's I, does this now, and he's great at it. Yeah, I, I, 
I love how ambitious he is. I love that he's trying to, to squeeze mm. every single idea he has mm-hmm. into every movie he makes. Like, Nope. is I, I love yeah. Nope, by nope. the way. I think it's probably his best yeah. film. And, uh, yeah, yeah. N- N- Nope uh, is, is dealing with a lot about sort of Hollywood history and mm-hmm. racism in Hollywood history and animal wrangling, all of this wonderful stuff. Uh, Get Out, I feel like it, it was really tight until the end. And I think yeah. at the end it's like, no, I, I need to do something... Not bleak. It's like, mm, but, uh, but I wanted bleak. Uh, was, <laughs> still, I, I was okay the, with bleak. The, the, um, the implications uh, of the plot of Get Out, once all is revealed, uh, those are not solved. No. And in no. fact, if you think about it, there's a lot of line. There's a line that the parents say, I think a couple of times, hmm. about, I, I would have voted for Obama a, a third time if I could have. Uh suggests something might be canonical that is really creepy. Like, it's really fucking... As soon as I realize that, wait a minute, does that mean... That is a second meaning, doesn't it? (laughs) Holy shit, that is really fucked up. Like, there's a lot going on. Um, It's great. Anyway, uh, so uh, we're we're done with number one. I've I've lost my voice already, so I apologize for that. We'll make it quick. Uh, Real fast, I just want to say... No overlap so far. Not yet. Yeah. That's, uh, I think it might be the first time that's happened, or the second time. <laughs> what is your number? Uh, you probably saw this one coming, but it's David Lynch's Eraserhead. Oh, okay. Um, Actually, I, I wasn't sure we were going to get to it. Okay, okay. yeah. Um, David Lynch's Eraserhead is, A, it's one of my favorite movies. Um, yeah. It, speaking of filmmakers who are really capturing what like a nightmare feels like, I feel mm. like that's what David Lynch does. Um, yeah. I remember showing that I, I discovered this film when I was like around 16 or so. A lot of people discovered David Lynch around that age. And, uh, and this is one of those films I saw that kind of cracked cinema open for me personally. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh wait, it's not just stories. Like, <laughs> it, it, it can be this like cinema can do this. This Eraser is wonderful. Head was spoken of with hushed tones at my junior high school. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, Oh, you haven't, you haven't watched a movie. So you've seen a razor head. It will mess you up. And, and, and they were right. Yeah, when, <laughs> the, when you're in junior high school, was that'll mess you up. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's a, a you know surreal odyssey about this guy played by Jack Nance. He has got the funny upward hair. Yeah. He, um, some people have called it the weirdest sex scene where uh, he's like floating in space and he opens his mouth and uh, like this giant worm is extracted by a man in the middle of the planet and that's and yeah. it falls into this pool of liquid and like clearly that's like him f- like fathering a child in that moment maybe eh, it's a symbol for it i've seen weirder uh, the the uh, uh yeah. <laughs> the the one-to-one like this is what this means however is something david lynch would bristle at oh, you yeah. know, he, what you see is what you get with david lynch it's, yeah. it's this is not like a, a surrealist political polemic where mm-hmm. this is a representation of something this is what it is doesn't he bristle um, at even being called a surrealist yeah he does he doesn't believe in surrealism because he feels that surrealism does have a political dimension that he's not privy to yeah um he's not making symbolic to, art he's yeah. making surrealism is trying to challenge in a way that yeah. david lynch is his work sometimes does but i don't think it's quite as intentional well i, I don't think it's as as calculated as all that That's i think I mean. david lynch is uh an artist who is speaking from his own heart and he's trying mm-hmm. to essentially open up his own brain and show you what's inside this is what the idea is what yeah. does that mean i don't care that's <laughs> not what i'm here to discuss he's very famously doesn't discuss what his movies are about but yeah mm-hmm. it's this, but at the same time, he went from a uh, small town Missoula to Philadelphia, this big industrial area, yeah. and just ha- had recently just had a child and was really ex- anxious about being a father. This is about a guy who lives in a big industrial area and is anxious about having a child that's not even really a child. The light of like human. They're not even sure it is a baby. Oh, that's funny. No, that's not funny. That's not, and, no. Uh, 
And and yeah, it's about sort of how he ends up getting locked in this tiny, bleak apartment room with this baby that's not really a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been said that it's like a, a lamb fetus, and he's David Lynch has been very cagey about you know the mm-hmm. effect he used. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it and it looks real to this. Oh day. yeah, it's, really it's a very, it's very, it it looks unlike anything, and yet it looks you you believe it. Yeah, you yeah. believe in that in that creature character, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. Um, and, and it's, you know, sound design is a very important part of this. There's mm-hmm. a lot of like hum, machines throbbing and humming in the background. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a creature living in his radiator. Mm-hmm. This uh, a woman with lar- large cheeks who sings that in heaven everything's fine. Yeah. Is that death? One of the great um, movie songs. Yeah. I, I, generally, I generally believe that. Mm. It, it's, it, it shouldn't be catchy, but it is catchy. Um, yeah. I forgot the name of the... Uh, the singer Laurel yeah. Neer plays the the woman, but it's a man. Oh, it's voice. a man's voice. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, singing falsetto. Okay. Um, yeah, and, the, and there's other music in it too, but it's like leaking in through the walls from yeah. like the next apartment over, uh, and it really does feel like nightmares you've had. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it also feels really theatrical. There's all this like weird uh, lighting. David Lynch famously made it over the course of five years. He was yeah. using AFI money. AFI kind of forgot about him well, AF- after all those five. Years. And it was a weird pitch to AFI because he gave. Like I think the script was like a twenty-page like, script. It was like a twenty-page yeah. script, and the AFI is like, yeah, okay, so it'll be like a what, a twenty-minute movie? Yeah, it'll be a bit longer than that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so like what, 30, 40 minutes? It's yeah. a feature. It, so yes, yeah, it's, it's a twenty. It's a ninety-five-minute feature. How do you? Huh. So he just kind of went off, and mm-hmm. five years later came back with one of the best motion pictures ever made, and it is really, really great. And 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 it yeah, and it speaks to his style. Yeah. Like everything you see oh, in yeah. Razorhead, he continued to, to explore throughout oh, his yeah. career, uh, even as late as Inland Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see his love for it, it, cinema. It makes the return, I think, even as well. Oh yeah, yeah. You can see his love for mm-hmm. cinema just sort of a, mm-hmm. growing right there in yeah. front of you, like in the soil of Eraserhead. Yeah. Um, and it it's kind of funny, Chase. Uh, sort of tracing his career, how he kind of got more and more into sort of the deeply cinematic things and uh, mm. the photography in his movies just kept getting better and the pacing just kept getting like slower mm-hmm. and more eerie. I think he peaked with like Lost Highway in terms of like what he was doing with uh, photography. Oh, that's a gorgeous movie. Uh, yeah. and, I love that movie. And then you go to, and then he kind of like started to lose it after a while because it was taking too long. Mm-hmm. He was having ideas too quickly. So he started shooting things yeah. a little bit more quickly. He made Mulholland Drive a couple of years made later. Made a lot of shorts. Yeah, made yeah. some shorts in there. He's just trying to get, get his stuff out. And by mm-hmm. the time he's making Inland Empire, he's just shooting the way he wants to shoot. Come over, I'll have an idea for a scene. We'll shoot it. Uh, he's saying this mm-hmm. to Laura Dern. Come yeah. over, we'll shoot it, and we'll be done. Uh, what's how does that fit into the movie? I don't know. I'll figure that out later. And somehow, not only did he figure it out, but it's brilliant. I love Inland Empire as well. And and he he even proved. And I remember, uh, I think it was, I think it was the review of Lost Highway mm-hmm. when uh, Siskel and Ebert were talking about. Wait, wait, David Lynch is such an incredible filmmaker. I wish he just make a movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> I wanted to make like a more conventional narrative. And, yeah. and I don't know if he, he thought of that as like someone threw down a gauntlet or I just want to prove that I can do it. But he made The Straight Story, which is a oh. Disney film about G- a road trip. A G-rated road trip movie yeah. for and it, Disney. And it's an odd film, but it's also a very conventional film in a lot of ways. And when you look at like The Elephant Man, when you look at The Straight Story, you realize that he knows what he's doing. He can do anything he wants to do. This isn't like some guy who doesn't know how to make a movie another way. He is explicitly choosing to do every single thing that he does. And, yeah, it all comes down to Eraserhead. You mentioned that he doesn't like to say anything about what his movies are about. He did say one thing about Eraserhead. 
It was in an interview. Oh, I, I and remember said, this. Yeah. It's classic. He said, you know, actually, Eraserhead is my most spiritual movie. And I forget who the oh. talk show host was, but I was like, oh, really? Would you care to elaborate on that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, well, that's it. That's yeah, all he, you get. <laughs> he made one mainstream uh, sort of studio oh, yeah. picture. He made Dune. Yeah. And, uh, and even that's one of the weirdest fucking and, studio and I, pictures and I ever lo- made. And I love Dune for that. Same. Um, I think he, he personally hates Dune well, because he had to compromise on a lot. Well, that's, but the that's studio. the Alien 3 thing as well. Like, oh. you made the movie under conditions that you don't like. And, you know, I don't know if we'd get Blue Velvet the way we got Blue Velvet if it wasn't for yeah, the anger at having to make Dune. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, we, we, we look down at those, like, moments, those chapters, like, oh, what a waste of time and opportunity or whatever. Or I didn't get to do what I wanted to do, but it's an interesting failure. Um, when you look at an artist's entire career, there's a place for those. You can actually come back from that or, mm-hmm. or use that as a launching pad for something different. And not everyone gets to, not everyone can. There's a lot of external circumstances, but when those movies have like just a place in the pantheon, they have a purpose, it seems. And I feel like doing this like that. But no, that's a really great pick. Um, my number one, bit of a cheat. Oh dear. It is uh, uh, a directorial debut. No, no, no arguing there. It is a tie because they made the same movie. Oh. Lawrence Olivier is Henry V and Kenneth Branagh is Henry V. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll let you have it. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, we, we love Shakespeare. Oh. We love Shakespeare movies. We did a whole Iron List. One of our earlier Iron Lists was just our favorite Shakespeare movies. Uh, and Henry V was a big deal on all of that. Um, Lawrence Olivier, uh, considered one of the great actors, just in general, uh, made his directorial debut in the 1940s with a Shakespeare movie at a time when Shakespeare was considered box office poison. Uh-huh. Uh, he made a experimental adaptation of Henry V, which broke like the fourth wall multiple times. Uh, oh. the, the play begins with uh, a monologue uh, that is basically the play explaining, we're we, in a theater. We, we have modest means, yeah. We're in a theater... We have props, we have costumes, and we're about to tell a story that spans multiple countries and battlefields, and you're gonna need to use your fucking imagination, so bear with us here. Except Shakespeare managed to make that sound brilliant. Mm. Um, (laughs) Olivier's interpretation of that was, I'm gonna start in a theater, I'm gonna start backstage. Mm. We're gonna see the first act or so is gonna be in a theater, and we're gonna see how this might have been staged in Shakespeare's time give you a sense of it as a play. And then we're gradually, as the play moves out of, you know, uh, rooms in a castle, the play will expand as well. And we'll start to go into more elaborate studio sets, the kind of thing you couldn't do in a theater, but are still clearly studio sets. And then by the time we get to the Battle of Agincourt, the centerpiece, it's actually shot on location. Yeah. It's incredible. And then it starts shrinking back again as, as, towards the second half. Henry V is a great play. Henry V is, is a morally complicated play. And Laurence Olivier didn't want to make a morally complicated version. So he cut out <laughs> a lot of the stuff that doesn't make Henry V look very good. Yeah. Because it was made <clears throat> in World War II when Britain was being bombed. We, we, we kind of wanted to feel good about England at the time. So he cut out the stuff. That doesn't, where, where the king is like, yeah, listen, the king may declare war, 
on another country. Uh, but um, all the soldiers are the ones who are responsible for their deeds. I'm like, no, because you'd kill them if they don't. In <laughs> fact, you do. <laughs> so you're a huge hypocrite. Um, but it's a brilliant movie. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's brilliantly acted. It's funny. It's thrilling. It's exciting. And it won a special Academy Award for crying out loud just because of how interesting it was. Cut to about 45 years later, 40 years later. Kenneth Branagh, an actor who... A, a fan of Olivier's. A fan of Olivier, a huge Shakespeare fan. Uh, a guy who really hadn't done a lot that you might have noticed, especially in film and television at the time. Directed and starred as Henry V in a version of Henry V that fucking slays. <laughs> Which, do, it doesn't do what uh, Olivier's did. Because Olivier started in uh, The Globe uh-huh. and then expanded out. And yeah. uh, Branagh's has this... You know, that similar opening narrative narration, this time from Derek Jacobi. Yeah, but here he's uh, on a film set. He's on a film set and he's wearing modern clothes. And mm. when he shows up again, he's wearing modern clothes. Yeah, so it's just great. He does this whole monologue about how, you know, again, we're going to use we're using our imagination here, except mm. here we're using the magic of cinema. And then as he, he walks past Kenneth Branagh's director's chair, mm. and then he opens a big door, and then boom, we're in the past. Yeah. And occasionally Derek Jacoby will just walk into the past wearing his modern clothes and give a bit more exposition. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Um, but uh, both films, I think, uh, aim to make the character of Henry V, even while vaunting him, very modest. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a much more human character. It's, well, it's and, I think, and I think the play is trying to do that to his yeah, extent as well, of course. Uh, I remember some controversy when Kenneth Branagh's version came out. Uh, the entrance of Henry V. Mm-hmm. Uh, he enter- and it's this big stylized set, these gigantic yeah. tall doors, and they swing open. This big yeah. musical crescendo, and uh, and and he's just in silhouette at this point. And Kenneth yeah. Branagh's kind of striding through the room. We can't mm-hmm. see his face. He's yet. got a cloak on, and it's not until he, he sits he, down that he and he kind of throw- he kind of whips it off. He's kind of tense, and he sits in the chair. And it's Kenneth Branagh, and he's like, and he's a kid. He, it's a baby. He, he's like twenty, and he's and, playing uh, it up. Like yeah. he's not trying to make himself look older. Mm. He's pointing out this is a child. Yeah. He's an adult, but he's essentially a child. So, so it, you go through all of that pump, and I know yeah. people say you don't do that with Henry V. It's a humanist play. You have to make him sort of a human character. I did. He, <laughs> I, I gave him this big, you know, royal he's, opening. He still exists within that world. Yeah, he is the king. He's treated like, like, like the, a vaunted the, all figure. All of this opulence is part of like the royal system, and it's yeah. not he's connected human to reality within yeah. that. Yeah, which is a bit more complicated to to present. Um, it's a gorgeous production. Patrick Doyle's score <laughs> is one of those scores where when you hear like the main theme, you realize, oh, people have been using that in trailers, in trailers for so yeah. fucking long, and I didn't even know what it was from. Uh, when uh, like Martin Scorsese did his opening action sequence in Gangs of New York, apparently he was like, hey, did you ever see Henry V? Like, <laughs> holy shit. Like, that action sequence is phenomenal. And I love that action sequence in the middle because... So much of the actual fight is done very close, very intimate, and it looks like they're hiding their budget. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's very smoky. It's like, okay, listen, we can't afford to show, like, the whole big battlefield, right? But he gotcha, because he could, and he chose not to. The final shot of that whole sequence is Kenneth Branagh, and he's carrying the corpse of, like, a 12-year-old Christian Bale. <laughs> and it's one long shot. And uh. for the first time in this whole giant action sequence, it's a long, slow, panning shot over the entire field, but we're not showing how cool it is. We're showing the corpse aftermath. 
fucking brilliant filmmaking. And the play is kind of weird, though, because it, it peaks, like, in the middle, and then it ends with, like, a love story. Yeah, yeah, which is really, really weird. And that, that's a strange way to end it, no matter how you... you it, it's history, so they, like, they were kind of, like, trying to make it work. But, like, cinematically hard to do. And I think Kenneth Branagh pulls it off better than Olivier. Because Kenneth Branagh has something Olivier didn't have, and that's Emma Thompson. <laughs> Branagh and Emma Thompson, who were an item for a while, fell apart. They had sexual chemistry on camera the way very few actors ever had. Especially in Much Ado About Nothing. But in just oh. in, in the one scene they have together in this movie, which is about Henry trying to... Uh, woo her. She's the she's the princess of France. He's trying to marry her and trying to convince her to marry him, and they're all alone. But she doesn't speak English, and he is trying to convey his noble intentions while yeah. also trying and to he put speak French. Yeah. And he doesn't really speak French. So if they didn't have the chemistry that they had, that that would have been death. Yeah, and they do. What a great cast, by the way. It's fucking awesome. Ian Holm, Brian Blessed. You got Brian Blessed in Henry V, and you didn't make him play Falstaff in a flashback. Imagine the restraint it takes not to cast Brian Blessed as Falstaff. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you? He was built to make. He was like designed in a lab to play Falstaff. My God. Um, two very different interpretations of Henry V. Both their directorial debut. Both of them went on to be great filmmakers who made a variety of different films but are best known for their like landscape-changing Shakespeare adaptations. Uh-huh. I, 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 if it wasn't a tie, that wouldn't have been my number one, but I just thought that was so weird. I had to make it my number one. Anyway, that is it for The Iron that, List. That's a great number one. Thank you. I, I respect thought, I thought that. pretty smart yeah. about it. I, I was like, oh, that's pretty good, Bibbs. Nice job. Um, and, I, and I came up with that like today. I was like, okay. uh, um, So uh, real fast, we'll talk about runners-up in a second, but here are our final lists uh, in the order in which they were given. No, no overlaps. Nope. None. Interesting. Uh, Whitney selected uh, Jean Cocteau's Blood of a Poet. Uh... uh who did Paris belongs to us again? Jacques Rivette. I, Jacques Rivette. I, I almost had a Lane Wayne's day and it was wrong. Uh, Paris belongs to us. Uh, Sidney Lumet's Twelve Angry Men. Uh, George Lucas's THX 1138. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat. Uh, Richard Elfman's Forbidden Zone. Alex Cox's Repo Man. Darren Aronofsky's Pie. Lynn Ramsey's Rat Catcher. And David Lynch's Eraserhead. Yeah. And my selections were John Huston's The Maltese Falcon. Uh, Robert Wise's The Curse of the Cat People, Mel Brooks's The Producers, Hayao Miyazaki's Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro, uh, uh, David Mamet's House of Games, Don Bluth's The Secret of Nim, uh, David Fincher's Alien 3, uh, Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket, uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, and both Laurence Olivier's and Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. Now again, we had giant runners-up lists on oh, these, because yeah, there's yeah, no yeah, shortage so. of these. Uh, but Whitney, what, uh, tell us very, whatever you want to talk uh, about. Very quickly, um, Louis Spoonwell's uh, Lodge Door, talked about it before. Yep. Citizen Kane, gotta say it, uh, just runner-up. Uh, you don't need me to recommend you, Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's um, Pothapon Charlie, such as yeah, you first movie, is really excellent. Uh, Glenn or Glenda. I, that made my, uh, that made my runners-up as well. <laughs> uh, by a similar token, Phil Tucker's Robot Monster. Same, also memorized uh, that. 
Uh, I love Robot Monster. Uh, 400 Blows is on there. Hiroshima on more. Mario Bava's Black Sunday. Also an excellent horror movie. Great film. Uh, let's see, Paris Gorgeous. Paris. One of the prettiest uh, horror movies ever made. Mike Nichols' Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is still bleak and, and difficult to this I've day. I've actually never seen that. It's very, very good. I put yeah. the producers on my list. Bob Rafelson's Head, the Monkeys movie. Yeah, I knew you'd that. It's really great. Mm-hmm. Dario Argento's first movie, Bird with a Crystal Plumage, that is a was, really good one. That was like my first runner-up. Like, that was like uh, on okay. the top ten until today. Like, that, if if Stanley Kubrick made a slasher movie, it would be Bird with a Crystal Plumage. It's so fucking great. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Uh, Holy Grail. Money, mm-hmm. Mother, and Holy Grail. Yep. That was really good. Uh, Nobuhiko, Nobuhiko Obayashi's House yeah. was his first feature. Great and it, it, I didn't, like many people, I wasn't aware of that until kind of recently, but it's mm-hmm. really great. Yeah. Um, Terrence Malick's Badlands. Yeah, not yeah, not necessarily movie. not really emblematic of what he would go on to do, but it's still a great movie. You can say that. Uh, I, I did put down the Castle of Cagliostro. John, uh, John Carpenter's Dark Star is yeah, uh, kind of a fun movie. existentialist movie. Airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else on there? Um, Tim Burton's Pee Wee's Big Adventure is mm-hmm. you know very striking unto itself. Uh, Stuart Gordon's Reanimator mm-hmm. is is you know we talked about that one kind of recently. Yeah. Same with uh, Savage's mm-hmm. Holland, Better Off Dead. Excuse me, Savage Steve Holland's Better Off Dead. Mm-hmm. Great pick. Uh, Clue was Jonathan Lynn's first movie. Mm-hmm. How do you make a comedy that tight right out of the gate? That That's amazing. Very close to my list as well. That's a brilliant. Yeah, we've talked a lot about Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. I talked about the kind of the decline of Western civilization by Penelope Spheris. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Robinson's With Nail and I mm-hmm. uh, still plays to yeah. this day. I also put The Secret of Nim. Frank Oz did The Dark Crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Jackson was much more interesting when he was starting out, and I love Bad Taste. Yeah, Bad Taste I, is I also mentioned House of Games. Um, it, it, it's revolting, but pointedly so. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cameron Crowe's Say Anything is one of the great movie romances. Yeah. Uh, Jan Schwankmeyer's Alice. Uh, Jan Schwankmeyer, yeah. Czech surrealist animator. He made this Alice in Wonderland story that's really, really great. Uh, big Hollywood sweeping epic Dances with Wolves. Yeah, that's an better, better than I thought it than yeah. I, than I thought it would. We watched that like like was it the first time we'd ever seen that or was it? Like, no, I, I saw yeah. it when it came out and I re- revisited it like twenty five years later, thinking it would date and it actually yeah, holds up pretty well. It's an excellently um, directed film. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Coen's Blood Simple. Yeah. Uh, Larry oh, Clark's yeah. Kids is pretty mm. uh, pretty rough. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ron Underwood's first feature was Tremors. Yes! <laughs> That's a brilliant piece of work. Also came very close to my uh, list, yeah. Uh, F. Gary Gray's Friday yeah. uh, was really a huge deal when that came out. Uh, I also picked Bottle Rocket. Matthew Bright's Freeway. I couldn't, oh, I couldn't pick it that so one. I, it's so sleazy. I couldn't pick yeah. that one and uh, Forbidden Zone, though, because Matthew yeah. Bright's in both of them, so I didn't want to double up. Right. Uh, I'm very fond of Barry Sonnenfeld's film version of The Addams Family. It's a really good yeah, day. That, uh, that was also high on my runners-up as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, Wachowski Starship's Bound yeah. is, is really brilliant. The only reason I didn't pick that is I feel like I talk about that movie a lot. Yeah. I love, like, I feel these, like, these are movies I feel like are get talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Like You don't need me to tell you to see Boys in the Hood. See Boys of, in the Hood. You've yeah. probably seen it already. Yeah. Um, uh, Satoshi Khan's Perfect Blue is a really yes, brilliant very movie. Close to my list, uh, Harmony Corrine's Gummo is really difficult to swallow. Was that their first? Yeah, okay, yeah I think I so. I, um, was. Uh, I was very fond of a film by Vincenzo Natale called Cube. Yeah. Vincenzo Natale has done a few interesting horror films since that, then. That, 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 I think that was on our list of uh, single location movies yeah, because it's uh, just like, people in a cube and it's it great. D- deals a lot with like yeah. a little. Speaking of a lot with a little, Kevin Smith's Clerks. I've talked mm-hmm. about that movie a lot recently. Brad Bird's Lion Giant. You've heard me talk about that a lot recently. Uh, Julie Taymor's film Titus. Yeah. She's a big theater luminary. She moved, into, she moved into films doing this one of Shakespeare's more obscure 
Emperor plays and gave it more than it deserved. Oh, really. Titus does not deserve a movie yeah. that good. It's so fucking great. I, I like uh, Sophia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2005, Miranda July, another artist, made a movie called uh, Me and You and Everyone We Know. Mm-hmm. That's a really excellent movie. Uh, what else do I got here? Pride and Prejudice by Joe Wright. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason Reitman's Thank You for Smoking. Okay. That's kind of a light comedy. I like sure. that one. Lucky McKee's May. Yes. Oh, uh, God. I, I think I've missed that one, actually. That's a good oh. pick. <laughs> uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch. Yes. That uh, was the one. That was the other one from the 20. 20- Tens that almost made my list. Yeah, that that, that, that was, one. Yeah. Uh, Ex Machina almost did. Yeah. Joe Cornish's Attack the Block. I love Attack the Block. Great movie. It was one movie that came with a lot of hype, so I was wary of it. But it lived up. But then it like lived up to the hype. Yeah, funnily so enough, I actually thought it didn't, and then I rewatched it, and I was like, I don't know what the hell it was on that yeah. day. That movie fucking <laughs> it's killed. It's like so sharp. It's so great. Uh, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Um, uh, Ari Aster's Hereditary. I almost put John Carroll Lynch's film Lucky from a couple years back, uh, the one with Harry Dean Stanton, but he's only made the one film so far, yeah. so I couldn't do that We anymore. We, we, yeah. we have to agree on that. But if we ever do the only movie list, yeah, it'll, it'll, I, it'll I can do that one. Uh, yeah, okay, so that's a lot of runners-up, and I'm going to add to that uh, Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi. Haven't seen it. Oh, fucking great. I love El Mariachi. Um, all of the potential is right there. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom, arguably still his best film, because it's no. the one that marries the things that we like about him mm-hmm. with an actual story. <laughs> I found it doesn't hold up. Oh, I disagree. M- multiple viewings, it, it, oh, gets, wor- it gets worse. With I very much disagree. I love Strictly Ballroom. Uh, Bound uh, as well. Fritz the Cat, Citizen Kane, okay. Blood Simple, you already mentioned these. Joe Johnston's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. All right. It's a great <laughs> bit of epic filmmaking right off the bat. Ben Affleck's Gone Baby Gone is oh, a really a impressive one, yeah. debut. Um, Rob Sitch's The Castle. An Australian comedy. Oh, that one, yeah. Yeah, which is, if you've never that's, seen The that's Castle... That's a really sweet movie, yeah. If you've ne- the only reason I didn't include it is because he didn't have like a huge career afterwards, and it's kind of hard, hard to contextualize it, but it was shot in 11 days, <laughs> and it is one of the best comedies of the 90s. It's so good. Please see The Castle. You'll thank me for it. Um, let's see. Bird of the Crystal Plumage. Um, uh, Let's see here. Ba 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 ba. Black side, Black Sunday. Clue. Uh, Phil Jono's uh, Three O'clock High. Oh yeah, I, I knew you were very fond of yeah. Three O'clock High. Uh, before he became a guy who mostly directed bad movies, Albert Pune directed The Sword and the Sorcerer. That was his first one. I think it was his first one. I think Albert Pune did something before Sword and the Sorcerer. I mean, he'd been working on stuff. I don't. I think that was his directorial. Correct me if I'm wrong. But let me look up Albert Pune. No, correct I, me if I'm wrong. Um, let's see here. Uh, ba, 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 ba. uh, Tom Hanks is that thing you do is just an absolute charmer of a motion picture. He's only directed the three films though, right? Uh, yeah, but still, right. uh, um, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Kronos, uh, I still think is one of his best works. Uh, a movie that you've heard uh, me you're, talk you're about. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. A movie you've heard me talk about enough, but I think it's, it's still my favorite movie. Searching for Robbie Fisher, Steve Zalian, mm. uh, Steven Spielberg's duel. Great movie. Um, let's see. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Heart eight. That's all right. Yeah. Uh, Preston Sturges's The Great McGinty is a wonderful uh, political comedy. I haven't seen that one. Uh, John M. Chu's Step Up to the Streets. Of course. Deserves a mention. 12 Angry Men was on my list. Rob Reiner's There's a Spinal Tap. Okay. Great comedy. Uh, let's see here. I had Badlands, Boys in the Hood, The 400 Blows, Whit Stillman's Metropolitan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great, great comedy. Uh, let's see here. Ba, 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 ba. Uh, Clerks, uh, certainly a, a, a flash grenade in the 90s. You gotta, you gotta appreciate it. Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep. I feel like if I'd seen that more recently, it would have been my top 10. But oh, I couldn't yeah, feel yeah. like I could talk about it in as much detail. It's been a second since like. I've seen that one, too. It's, been, it's, been it's, it's great. It's yeah. great, but it's been a uh, Night of the Living Dead. 
Uh, oh, of course, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Jeez, why didn't I put that on my list? Uh, uh, Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave, which I think is very underrated. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a really, really great thriller. Uh, Charles Kaufman, uh, Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York. Uh, I'm actually surprised it wasn't su- on your super list. Super ambitious movie. Yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. awesome movie. Uh, Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Um, let's see here. I've got a few more. And they were at Glenn or Glenda, The Robot Monster, Ba 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 Ba, Head, My Python, The Holy Grail, Get Carter. Uh, Mike Hodges, Get Carter. Great oh, movie. Um, let's see. The Wicker Man, although we didn't really do a lot of other movies. Um, Benji. <laughs> the original Benji is great. The other one's not so much. But the original mm. one, great. Uh, Tim Burton's Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I Give it up. Wonder, yeah, yeah. Wonderful movie. Uh, I also had Better Off Dead. I also had Reanimator. also had Body Heat. Michael Mann's Thief. It's fucking awesome. I haven't seen Thief. I know. Uh, Steve yeah. Miner's Friday the 13th Part 2. Steve Miner, yeah. A, did, did some fun horror movies after that, too. Right? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, John McNaughton's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer is one of the mm. fucking most depressing movies ever fucking made. Um, let's see here. Uh, bah, 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 bah. Anything else that I had this long ass list? I'm not going to list all of them. Ang Lee's Pushing Hands. Nobody talks about it. Amazing drama. All right. Absolutely. People need to see that movie. It's so fucking good. Um, Perfect Blue in the Company of Men, but I just talked about that in the last Iron List. Uh, Cube as well. Uh, Andrew Nichols Gattaca. Okay. Great modern mm-hmm. sci-fi movie. Uh, Andrew Nichol also did um, Simone, which is, which a, is another another pretty good. And in, te- increasingly te- relevant, yeah, Simone. Yeah. Like, very ahead of its time, Simone. Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. Uh, uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick, which I like a lot more than you do. Yeah. Uh, Bill Paxton's Frailty. Oh, that's an excellent film. Great fucking movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see here. Anything else? Uh, um, What's your most recent one? Uh, the most recent one is... Either Get Out or The Witch, whichever one came out most recently. Oh, okay. um, I had a few where I was like, eh, give it some time. Okay. But <laughs> uh, but uh, a, few, a couple of the more recent ones, Fruitvale Station, mm-hmm. I was on there. Ex Machina was on there as well. All right. Uh, and uh, The Babadook as well. Oh, nice. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so those are our picks for the best directorial debuts ever. Uh, did we fuck up? <laughs> Did we miss something? Please let us know. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email with your complaints, your suggestions, your own list on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. If you want to vote for future episodes of the Iron List. If you want to listen to a whole bunch of episodes of our various other shows that are only available on our Patreon, if you want to hear an episode like this ad-free, no, no interruptions, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Your options for the Iron List for the month of February are going to be, because it's our 50th episode, <laughs> the best films of 1950, the best cop movies, the best devil movies. The best romance movies, which is a pretty broad category. And because uh, it is it is time uh, to uh, bring back the option, uh, the best movies that begin with A, B, C, D, E, H, I, J. <laughs> the best movies that happen to begin with the letter J will be an option for the month of February. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for joining us. Obviously, it's been a very, very long podcast, so we're just going to wrap it up here. We're on social media at Critic Clam. I'm Matt Lambiani. He's at Whitney Seibold. That's the list.